Faces vault, apparently. We're live. All right, awesome. So we're officially live. Thank you for that, David. Thank you, Jordan Peterson, for coming back for this. I think this is fourth or fifth time us, uh, us having you on. How are things? Strange. Strange? But good. Fantastic. Yeah, uh, so I started my tour about 10 days ago. Um, I saw Joe Rogan first, and that was really good and seemed to provoke a lot of outrage in the predictable places. And um, we need more of that, though. We need, we yeah, need well, more we're going to get outrage. we're going to get more. So yeah. so I don't think we're going to have to wish for that. That's just going to happen. And then I've done seven tour lectures so far and with an average audience size of about twenty five hundred. And they're going great. They're unbelievably positive. Everybody, almost everybody dresses up, which I think is really cool. Really? Yeah. Well, when I went on, on tour in 2018, before I went out, I thought I wanted to do this like 100% right, or at least as close to that as I could manage. So I went out and bought some expensive suits, and I spent way more money on, this is one of them, actually. You look great, by the way. Thank you, okay. thank you. Way more money than I ever thought I'd spend on clothes, and I really felt quite bad about it. You know, I thought maybe it was an extravagance, but I thought, no way, man, I'm going to see if I can nail this dead on, and I'm going to be speaking to, you know, 100,000 people. I'm going to look as sharp as I possibly can. And uh, one of the consequences of that has been that young men in particular come to the lecture tour dressed up in suits, three-piece suits, they're, or the couples come and they're dressed up like they're coming to a wedding. Or, so that's really something. And Why uh, do you think that is? Why do you, is, is it because you set that standard? sick act and like kids. Okay. You know, our whole culture pushes the idea that teenage life or even childhood for that matter, but teenage life is some sort of pinnacle and then everybody dresses down so they look, especially men, they look like overgrown 10-year-olds and there's something extremely demeaning about that. And so to provide people with the opportunity to dress up in a, in a classic manner and to look like adults, to present themselves in that manner, there's something very attractive about that because we haven't done that in our culture. That's been, I would say, downplayed in importance or 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 for for certainly since the 1960s who's to blame for that because you recall anytime you would fly in an airplane if you see old school pictures people were dressed in three-piece suits to go on an airplane this is in the 60s i assume and then now you see someone like mark zuckerberg wear a t-shirt to give a speech in front of a ted talk or something like that well some of it some of it's just fashion you know i mean fashion moves around and then and it's, it usually drifts from the top down. And so when formality becomes the norm, but that drifts down, t- say, to the working class, then the upper class thinks, well, we can't do that because that would, you know, associate us with the unfashionable people. And then they dress down. And so then that drifts down the hierarchy. And so there's some of, the, some of it's just fashion, but a lot of it, too, is this idea that th- this sort of reflexive rebellious attitude that anything that violates traditional norms or even anything that's associated with patriarchal oppression and adulthood is to be eliminated in favor of what's hypothetically a more free individuality but it's not because everybody looks the same i was in washington four or five years ago maybe longer than that it's probably longer than that when i first went in the summer and one of the things that really struck me all these people wandering around these great monuments, is all the men looked like overgrown 10-year-olds. They, they looked exactly like their kids, except they were bigger. They looked like they'd been inflated mm. with a bicycle pump. And I thought, this is weird that, that adults are dressing like children. And 
not good. And so some of it's fashion, but some of it's also that. Is it exclusive in America? How about in Canada? What have you seen all over the world with this? No, I don't think it's exclusive to America. I think it, it was more noticeable to me in Washington. And I think that's when it really hit me, because Washington is, in some sense, a place of pilgrimage. And people from every class go there. And, and that's, that's a good thing. And, and they should from every economic class. And so it was like a cross, it was a real cross section of the total population. And that was one of the things that struck me quite, quite bluntly. And so anyways, it's very nice to see all these people when dressed he- up. And When you hear the argument being made, it's the following argument. The argument is, look, uh, you, you, you only have so much energy to make so many decisions throughout your day. Do you want to be in front of the closet in the morning, picking and choosing what suit I'm going to wear to tie with what shirt and what tie? You know what? I'd much rather not consume my energy thinking about what outfit to put together. It's a lot easier to just have a white shirt, jeans, regular tennis shoes, and go to work. And let me make the bigger decisions while I'm running the company. I've never felt bad not wearing a suit. Every time I've had a suit on, I felt better than just walking around with a T-shirt on, even though the T-shirt is a lot easier to do. You know, you're, it's a lot easier, even when you were in the military. It, it felt good. Having your greens on, you know, having your BDU on, there was something uh, very attractive about having a suit on. Not not for the audience, just even for yourself. Mm-hmm. You felt good having a uniform on. I don't know. Yeah, well, my I talked to my father about this years ago um, because he always wore a suit when he was. He was a teacher. He's still alive. He he's a teacher, and he always wore a suit. And I asked him why one day, and he said because it was his way of showing respect for the students, and. I mean, I'm not saying that everyone who doesn't dress in the suit is being disrespectful, but there's something about outfitting yourself for the task at hand. And there's also something about attempting to put some effort into presenting your, putting your best foot forward. And I don't really buy the it takes more time in the morning argument. It takes a bit more time, but once you, like before I went on this tour, I went through all my clothing and I tossed out everything that didn't fit and which included a number of suits that were old and I had to organize them, and that took about a day to get my closet in order. And but then, it, from then on, it only is actually a pleasure in some sense. Because do you do it yourself? Do I do meaning like do you go through your closet? You do it yourself. Like Pat has a very unique way of like you don't pack anymore, Pat. Do you like you have someone no, kind of help you like out pack. with that? Packing is not my strength mm-hmm. in my life. Mm-hmm. I have a lot. That's one of my weaknesses. No, I still did that for the tour because I had to figure out what I was going to wear. And but I've had people help me make clothing decisions let's say now it's often people who would like to make suits for me so so i have that as an advantage and but uh i did that pretty much on my own and anyway so the well we were talking about the tour it's going extremely well and so people come and they're dressed up and they look good not everybody dresses up but everybody looks pretty good and uh i like that i like when you go into a room and people are dressed up by the way just for the audience just so you know what topics we'd like to cover with you today Number one, we'd like to cover what a fantastic job your, your leader is doing, Trudeau, and I know you're a big fan of his. We'll cover him a little bit with the truckers and what they got going on up there in uh, Canada. Uh, two, we'll talk about uh, what happened with Whoopi Goldberg. I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on what should happen to her with the comments she made uh, about the Holocaust. Uh, some of the stuff that's going on right now with John Hopkins today, report came out talking about how great of an idea was the shutdown. And no one's talking about it. They said it was 0.2% effective. Love to get your thoughts on that. Some uh, uh, issues with a uh, the governor who came out with what they're doing was transgenderism, uh, Governor Noam. 
on the fairness bill. I'd be curious to know what you have to say about that and a few other topics that we got going on that's more on the personal side. When does divorce make sense? That's a question Adam's really curious about. And then uh, some other questions. So today, do you still live in Canada today? Are you still full-time living in Canada right now? Uh, insofar as I live anywhere full-time, it's in Canada. I have a house in Toronto, and we bought a new place about three hours north of Toronto on a lake, which uh, we spent a lot of time in over lake the last Muskoka? six months. Very close to yeah, there. No, yeah, it's that well. area. That yeah, it's area. awesome up there. Yeah, it is. It's beautiful up there. And so that's been real nice. Um, my daughter moved to Nashville partly to escape from the COVID restrictions and for other reasons as well, because Nashville has a really burgeoning creative culture and it's a very cool place. Great and city. Yeah, it's a great city. Very good city. And real estate still is relatively inexpensive, certainly by Toronto standards. Um, so, yes, why, why I'm still, are you still in Canada. Why are you still living in Canada? Well, I'm living in Toronto because my son and his wife and their 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 son live on the same street that we lived on. We we they, they purchased a house four years ago. I think it was four years ago. And that was before <clears throat> I assumed that I would be in Toronto for the rest of my life because I assumed I would work at the University of Toronto and continue doing what I was doing until I was like 90 because I really liked doing it. And there was just no reason to assume. And I had a clinical practice, which I also really liked. And so that was pretty good life. And I assumed we were there permanently. And my son liked Toronto. And so we... He, picked up a house and and they live there and so but that's really the reason I'm still in Toronto and how that'll play out over time I don't really know so because I mean I'm sure you're seeing everybody that's moving you know you got Joe who went from uh, California to Austin you saw Shapiro whose company is in Nashville but he's living here in Boca right you're seeing Ruben who I think just moved in uh, to I want to say Miami, yeah. right? You got Elon you Musk. got Musk goes to Austin. You got your daughter who went to Nashville, mm -hmm. right? You got all these people that are looking at, you know, uh, Nashville, Florida, Texas. It seems like those three states t tend to make people the most comfortable, and they're all red state. What needs to happen for Jordan Peterson to say? I'm kind of leaving Canada to go to a different state. Would anything happen that would cause you to leave that place? Well, I don't think, as long as my son's there, I don't think so, because that's a big advantage to being there. But we're doing so much traveling, my wife and I, that in some sense, we don't live anywhere. You know, I mean, we, were, we were three weeks, two weeks in the UK, and then a week in Washington, and now we've been on the road. We're going to be on the road pretty much nonstop till March of 2023, because this the tour ends in the States in, in, at the end of April, we'll hit 40 cities. And then Canada, assuming <laughs> that's possible, mm -hmm. but it looks like it probably will be. And then the UK and Europe, we're going to be back in Canada for two months in the summer. And then down to New Zealand and Australia and Southeast Asia. And then I'm going to Cambridge, I believe, in January to do a seminar on Exodus, which is what I wanted to do at Cambridge multiple years ago before they canceled me. And, but that's all being sorted out. And so it looks like there's a very high probability that that will occur. And then that's really as far out as we've looked. So that'd be March of 2023. And God only knows what shape the world's going to be in at that point. There's hardly any sense in planning out past that because everything is in such flux. There's no predicting the I future. A, I asked a question for the following reason. So, uh, you know, there are certain people who do a lot of work behind closed doors, but nobody knows them. There's a lot of smart people that are very intellectual, great teachers, you know, great students, loyalty, 
a ton of strong philosophies who maybe would make a great leader, but we don't know them, right? And very few, it's, it's very, very few, 0.1%, all of a sudden, boom, overnight the world knows who they are, and they're enamored by this person. You're one of them. It's mm-hmm. kind of what happened to you. Overnight, Jordan, who's Jordan Peterson? Well, the people who are in Toronto would know who Jordan Peterson is. Professor, teacher, clinical, I think you, had, you said you had 20 patients or 20 families that you were working on. Mm-hmm. I think that was the number. So it's not like it's in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. Overnight, the world's addicted to Jordan Peterson. Who is this guy? And then you have your moment with the lady that's pushing you feminist, and then that goes off, and wow, this man's deep. Then you write the book, sells millions on top of millions of copies, so then money's being generated, money's coming in, then everybody else comes in, hey, speaking this, speaking that, and that that adds up. That starts getting a lot of money. And then you had your uh, moment where I remember when I interviewed you on stage, that, that event was a very special event because it was you, and then I had also George Bush I interviewed at that event, as well as... Uh, the late Kobe Bryant, if you remember that event. That was one event, 6,000 people, and you got emotional on stage when we talked about your wife and your daughter. And I walked off the stage, and I said, I think he's dealing with something. I don't know what it is. I'm talking to my wife. I said, uh, I think this guy's dealing with something. And that was your last live event that you did. And you kind of went hiatus and, you know, the whole thing that you were dealing with, with the uh, medication and all that stuff. But then I kind of sit and I think about, you know, a Jordan Peterson. Said, okay, so he makes a comeback. When you go to a dark place and you come back, you, I would assume you may sit there and say, you know, stuff that I thought I valued, it's not really that valuable. Oh, well, I value this, though. And maybe you used to value it at 82%, now it's 90%. You know, and stuff they used to value at 48%, they give energy to because other people care, you're down to 22%. Like, I really don't give a shit about this. I don't know why I'm even putting so much time into it, right? And then you come out. And when you come out, you're kind of like looking around saying, God, why did I go through this? What was this all about? So it's kind of strange. So then I see someone like you. Yesterday I posted something saying, look, this whole thing with Spotify and Rogan, I'm sure we'll get into it. We'll talk about it because I'd be curious to know what you have to say about that. I really want to know your thoughts. I said, you know, in a, in, a, in a very strange way, I would love Spotify to drop Rogan. And we're talking. I said, why? Why would you want Spotify to drop Rogan? I said, because the first phone call Rogan would get is from Elon Musk. And Elon Musk would say, hey, don't worry about it. Let's go compete. I'm going to start something, you be the face, let's get a bunch of podcasters, come with us, and let's go do something. So I put this video out there, and I got commentary, people that are posting stuff. One guy said, that's just not Rogan. Rogan's not trying to be a hero. He's not trying to be a legend. He's not trying to be that. I said, well, if you read the journey of a hero as he fights it, until eventually it's kind of like, listen, man, I know you don't want to do this, but it's kind of like you could really address a lot of things. And you're the right guy for but I don't want to do it. We see this in movies all the time. It's mm-hmm. a constant fight, 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 fight. I asked a question with you in Canada because, you know, who gets more eyeballs in Canada than you? I don't know. And is Canada in a pretty strange place right now with the way Trudeau's handled things where he used to talk about freedom and we can't ever make people do anything to their bodies that they don't want to do and all of them. Okay, this guy makes sense. Boom. No, if we have to choose between delivering food and delivering this, we're going to choose this because you're like, this guy sounds like a dictator. Okay. Is there any aspiration where in a moment like this, with all of these weird things taking place worldwide, where maybe you've sat down behind closed doors with your family, with somebody, and have said, you know, Dad, Jordan, why, why don't you go in there and see if you can be the leader of a great country like mm-hmm. Canada and do something about it? Has that conversation ever taken place at this phase of your life? Yes. And? Well... 
I've thought about a political career at different points throughout my whole life, starting, literally, starting when I was 14. In fact, that's what I thought I would do when I was 14. I worked for a political party in Canada. It was a socialist party, as it turns out. And uh, I had that option open to me when I was extremely, when I was very young. But I figured out when I was about 16 that I didn't really know anything. And so I had ideas, and I was capable of functioning in the realm of ideas and putting them forth even then, I would say, in a somewhat compelling manner. But I, I figured out, partly because I had worked with a lot of small business people and also on the board of governors of this little college I went to, these are all people who built businesses from the bottom up. They were all immigrants because everybody in northern Alberta was an immigrant. And they didn't share my left-wing presuppositions, but they were very admirable people. And part of what made them admirable to me wasn't their facility with ideological conceptions. So it wasn't an intellectual attraction. It was a practical attraction. I'd worked in restaurants in this little town I grew up in, Fairview. And uh, I liked working with the guys that, that, that built the restaurant. And I talked to them one day about uh, the, the Socialist Party in Canada and Alberta at that time had a pretty good small business platform, probably better than the Conservatives had in terms of what it would do for small businesses. And I asked them one day, why aren't you in favor of this small business platform? Because they wouldn't vote mm. for the NDP, the Socialist mm -hmm. Party, <laughs> to save their lives. They said, well, we don't want to be small business people. <laughs> we want to be big business people. And so I learned then that people... What a people, comment to make. Well, the guy I worked with, his name was Scotty Kyle, and Scotty was a rough guy. He was about 35. I was about 15 at that time. And Scotty had been an alcoholic, and he had, like, all his teeth knocked out in fights. And, like, he was a rough guy, but he was super funny, and he was really smart. And he said to me one day, people don't vote their reality, they vote their dreams. And I mm. thought, hey, man, that's a good phrase. You know, that stuck in my mind for the rest of my life. And so, so in any case... When I went to college, I went, I was going to, I went to, to take political science and literature and I wanted to go into law school. I wrote the LSAT and I was set to go to law school. I wanted to take corporate law. And the reason corporate that I law. wanted to do that was to understand my enemy. That was the idea. And who was your enemy at that point? <laughs> well, I was still, <laughs> I, when owner, I went, yeah, party, yeah, 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 the big corporations, yeah, yeah. <laughs> essentially, big corporations, Powerful. you know. Yeah, wow. um, but I, I realized about a year into my college education for a variety of reasons that partly reading George Orwell but that wasn't all of it that um, I also didn't like I, I went to a lot of the uh, NDP party and it's New Democratic Party it's not the NDP party New Democratic Party conventions provincially and nationally and I'm, I had access to the leadership for a variety of reasons and a lot of the leaders were reasonably admirable people or maybe even completely admirable people who had worked with labor unions and like they were really they were advocates for the working class in a real sense. Mm -hmm. uh, but the party-level activists, I never liked them from the beginning. I thought, I don't trust you guys. You just seem to be driven by resentment, not, not genuine care for the working class. And so that, that didn't sit well with me. In any case, I started to get interested in psychological motivations for political behavior, especially as I went through my political science degree because there was increasing emphasis as we moved away from the classics, which is what I studied in the first couple of years, to more modern political thinking, let's say, it was all quasi-Marxist in that the political scientists believed intrinsically that people were only motivated by economic concerns. And I just never believed that. I thought that's which economic concerns 
And why? Well, those questions weren't asked by political scientists. They took economic determinism as a starting point, and that never sat well with me. I thought there was a mystery there because <clears throat> it wasn't obvious to me what motivated people. And we're not ruled by our bellies as far as I'm concerned. So the idea of pure economic determinism was a non-starter. And that's really when I started to get interested in psychology. And I've made a choice all the way through my life. The choice has always been, say, political sociological versus psychological or perhaps spiritual and I've always chosen the psycho psychological work at the mm -hmm. level of the individual and I don't think I'm going to stop doing that I mean I have had discussions serious discussions with people about a political career and first of all in my current situation it isn't obvious to me at all that that wouldn't be less effective than what I'm already doing you know, so that I, wouldn't be less effective. Yeah, yeah, it'd than be what less effective. Yes, it would be less effective for me to. What do you mean by that? Well, I'm. I mean, well, I know what you mean by that, but what do you mean by that? I mean, you mean to tell me you would you're you're having the same amount of impact now as you would as the PM? No, I think more. You would have lot. more right now. You're, you're having, having more impact. Yeah, yeah. Look, so, those are hard jobs, and it's very and you get boxed in very quickly, and they're also brutal jobs, and it isn't obvious to me that I have the stomach for it. I don't really like fights. In fact, I don't like them at all. Part of the reason that I said what I said back in 2016 when I first stood up and voiced opposition to what the universities were doing and also what my government was doing was because I could see where that was going. I could see that it was going to generate conflict of all sorts. I knew, for example, that all this pronoun foolishness was going to confuse thousands, particularly of young women, because there's a whole... there's an a very large clinical history of that sort of thing happening mm -hmm. for 350 years. So that's detailed in a book called The History of the Unconscious, which is a great book by a man named Henry Ellenberger, who wrote the best book on the history of psychoanalytic thinking. And so I knew that. Um, in any case, part of the reason I spoke up, and this was a hallmark of my clinical practice and also of the manner in which my family was organized, is like, we're going to have that fight right now. And we're going to make peace because I don't want to have this fight every day for the rest of my life. And so it's going to be a pain to fight through it because it's always a pain to fight through a conflict. But if you can fight through it, you can make peace and then you don't have the conflict. And I really don't like conflict. So I don't like it deferred because I know what happens if conflict is deferred. You get weaker because you backed off and the conflict gets more intense because its tentacles grow in a sense. It's like not paying your, not paying a utility bill. It's like, for the first month, it's not that big a problem. But I don't, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm trying to think to say that you think you're making a bigger impact right now than being a PM. I, don't, I have a hard time with that. Let me, let me unpack my question and challenge me on this. Sure. So, uh, so, so, okay. So let's just say, uh, uh, who is Jimmy Fallon? He is the, uh, you know, hey, I'd like to be like a Jimmy, uh, Johnny Carson, hypothetically. Like that's the. Fallon Carson, right? Who is, I don't know, uh, Tucker Carlson. Maybe he's trying to be a, a, a O'Reilly or maybe whoever it is that the lineage that you're going through, right? Okay, who's this latest person trying to have a show? She's trying to be the next Oprah Winfrey, right? Who would you say what Jordan Peterson is doing in history, who would you have been in the 16th or whatever uh, you know, century we go to? Who is Jordan Peterson? Like if you were to give a... A uh, uh, hundred years from now, what are people going to say who Jordan Peterson was? They're not going to say, oh, he was a professor. 
oh, he was a clinical psychologist. Oh, he was an author. I don't think they're going to say that. What do you think people are going to correlate you to 100 years from now? I, I really have no idea. So let's just say, is it like a philosopher, Plato? Would you say you're more of a philosopher? Would you say you're more like an Aristotle? Do you see yourself more as that? Do you see yourself as... Look, I'm just somebody that's sharing my thoughts and my life experiences, and it's I impacting think I'm, people's lives. I think life. I'm a clinical psychologist. Okay, so that's kind of how you see yourself. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And there's a great, there's a lineage of great clinical psychologists. I'm not saying that I'm in that lineage, but I would I say that people who are the most similar to me are people like, well, Carl Rogers might be an example. Okay. I mean, he didn't have the same social media platform, sure. but of course, no one did. But that's how I see myself intellectually, really, really as a psychologist, as a clinical psychologist. Okay. And I think that the work I'm doing on my lecture tour is a hybrid of being a professor and being a clinical psychologist. But is it and fair so, to say that's who you were, but you've evolved into something way bigger than just being a clinical psychologist? I think that's what Pat's yeah, no, well, kind of getting at. I mean, he's comparing I, you to an Aristotle of some capacity. Yeah, well, I don't know, because my, my focus is still on the individual, even when I'm lecturing in front of large audiences yeah. and I don't exactly lecture I explore ideas in front of audiences which is what Rogan does and I do that even when I'm when it's a monologue you know and you think well how can you be exploring ideas with the audience when it's a monologue and the answer is well you're attending to the audience you're watching them to see if they understand mm -hmm. and if they're nodding and, and what they're responding to like there's a dynamism about it and but it's all focused on the individual and there's been some unbelievably influential clinical psychologists or psychiatrists. I mean, Freud was unbelievably influential, and so was Carl Jung, and there's a half dozen sure. of them or so. And so I see that I'm in that tradition. Now, the fact that this information now can be disseminated in audio form and video form makes the playing field radically different. And mm -hmm. so I was also a very early adopter of those technologies. So when I blew up, let's say, it happened overnight. It's not, not exactly... Like because most of these things don't happen exactly. It takes overnight. twenty years to blow. Well, that, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that well, the, concept. the first doublings are invisible, right? Yeah, but and, that live outside of the university. Yeah, well, that was that, the, that's that's. Listen, everybody's like, "Who is this guy?" Yeah, he's right. He makes sense. So that was a concept yeah, of it. Well, that, yeah. sure, there was a tipping point there. That was when when there was a free speech rally outside my office at the University of Toronto. It wasn't organized by me, but I was invited to speak as was anyone who wanted to speak, by the way, at that event. And then a bunch of radical types tried to shut it down with white noise, and they were very annoying, and some of them were clearly psychopathic. Some of the people, I watched them, because I have a pretty good eye for that, and some of the men that came out, they were bad, bad actors. In any case, I got shanghaied on the way back into my office by these, these hypothetically trans-activist, mostly young people. What, is it, what do you mean, shanghaied? Well, they just surrounded me. Got it. You know, that's that's all I mean. Ganged up on. Well, kind of. They were they were disrespectful, which I wasn't very thrilled about because I think that it's not a good students. If students are being disrespectful to 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 professors, something's wrong. That's not that's not what happens at a university. I I, I had a, no tolerance for that in my classes. If you were out of line, you are more than welcome to leave now. And that mm -hmm. didn't mean you couldn't challenge me intellectually. That was absolutely fine. If you had a smart question, you were paying attention. I didn't care what your opinion was, but, you know, maybe when you're a junior high teacher or an elementary school teacher, you have to put up with misbehavior. Mm -hmm. 
Not as college. a professor, I put up yeah. with this like zero misbehavior. No misbehavior. We're adults. We're not doing that at all. Did you set the tone for that day one in the oh, first absolutely. class? Like, this yeah. is how oh, I roll. Yeah, I never had trouble with students in my wow. classes. Well, a handful of students would pretty much always leave the first lecture I gave, particularly my personality class, because a lot of them didn't know who I was. In my smaller classes, people already knew who I was, so that never happened. But in my personality class, there'd always be six or seven people in the first lecture who'd make a show of leaving. And it was because of the tone I set, which was, don't muck about in this class at all. You're here to listen or not. You can leave if you don't want to listen, but this is a serious endeavor. Any case, these students surrounded me, and uh, they filmed it, and then they put it online. And the object was to discredit me, but that didn't work. And, but the reason it didn't work, in part, and this is why this wasn't only overnight, was I already had 100 hours of lectures on YouTube. And I basically recorded everything I ever said to students in any professional capacity. And what I said in my classes was exactly the same as what I said when I wasn't in my classes. So there was no, there was no show there. And so people came to look to see what was going on. They came to my YouTube channel. And it had like 35,000, 50,000 subscribers at that point, which wasn't none, especially that early on in YouTube development. And they found out that what I was saying was not only completely unlike what I was accused of saying, but it was exactly the opposite, partly because, you know, I was accused of being this radical right-wing figure. And I'd lectured about the evils of National Socialism at Harvard and at the University of Toronto for like 20 years. So the idea that I was somehow radically right-wing was not only a lie, there's lies where you bend the truth, right? That's one kind of lie. I think what, the, I think what those lectures did is a way for people to not be able to taint your name by saying, I actually like what this guy has to say. Hmm. 35,000 subscribers, not a lot of subscribers. No. But this is where I'm going with this. So you're saying you see yourself as a clinical psychologist, right? Okay, uh, uh, great. You know, sometimes the challenge I have is to follow. Like, I, you know, I sit down and say, why is he still in Canada? Maybe there's bigger aspirations to stay in Canada because he loves his country and he'd like to see Canada become the country that he chose to live when he was a kid growing up and he's got memories, mom, dad, family, all this stuff. So maybe to him, because some people don't want to leave a country because they want to make a political contribution to that country. Some people are like, listen, what country is going to give me the best uh, tax benefits and freedom? I'm going to go there. I'm totally cool. I'm going to go to Singapore. I'll do my Bitcoins. I'll go to Puerto Rico, pay 4% on taxes. This is what I'm going to be doing, right? You seem like a very deep guy. Here's where I go with this. In my life, I've experienced a lot of weird things. Iran, war, divorce, parents, politics, military, you know, all this weird things that are business, you've seen coming up and, hey, we're so supportive of you. We want to see you win, Patrick. And then I start kind of getting big and all of a sudden we're getting big. It's like, well, we don't like you anymore. What happened? You liked me when I was small. You don't like me when I'm big. I'm the same person. What's the problem here, right? Here's what I've noticed. Those who are driven by force are more ambitious on imposing and having control than those who are driven by choice. Let me unpack this. Meaning, you know, sometimes people that are driven by force are more inspired to get involved in politics and create laws than those who are driven by choice. Hmm. Choice is kind of like, listen, let me leave me alone. Leave me alone, let me go live my life, right? But I think sometimes it's kind of like, you know, you made this one example, you know, uh, uh, who made this example? Somebody was on yesterday saying, look, you know, the way I look at foreign relations, Mike Ritland is if I go to a bar, and if a fight's breaking into a bar 
and I go in there, no matter what, if I go in there and fight, I'm going to piss off one side. Whether I fight defend the girl or the guy, someone's going to be upset with me because I chose to fight, right? It says America's kind of like that. You're getting into a lot of these fights and you're getting involved in these. There's a fight going on in your country right now, mm-hmm. yours. And people are still listening to this guy. He's still got influence. And you got, you know, you know, these truckers that are coming out that are saying, listen, man, you can't make us do this. This 5,500 mile America, this, you want us to get vaccinated. You want us to, we don't want to do it. We want this freedom. Don't you think, you know, this may be a good time for you to throw your name in the, you know, and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to go and here's why. Because I think 100 years from now, when we sit here and talk about who was the main philosopher when Lincoln was president, only people in that world are going to know who that person is, but everyone's going to know who Lincoln is and what Lincoln did and the impact he made, right? Do I think his life was a, you know, a peaceful life? If you've read about Lincoln and his marriage and that one friend he would travel with and when you go to the Smithsonian and they show the evolution of how much he aged, it's a pretty, it's a lot of burden of what this guy went through, right? But he was chosen and he was the right guy for it. You don't at all feel like, you know. No, made- it's again, I think I, I can detail out some of the reasons sure. I think I'm more effective doing what I'm doing. Well, I'm working with a lot of political people in the United States, both on the Republican and the Democrat side, all the time. And I couldn't do that if I was involved formally and technically in politics in Canada. I'm working with a bunch of people in the UK as well. And so, and I'm working with people in Canada. It's just more effective for me to do what I'm doing. I don't know about that. I don't know. Well, I can give you an example with the truckers, you know, so, and a a couple of examples. So, a week and a half ago, the former premier of Newfoundland, so equivalent of the governor of a state, he was the premier in, in the 1980s, and uh, he was one of the drafters of the Canadian Charter of Rights. So he actually wrote it with a bunch of other people, but he was one of them, and he's a mainstream, solidly admired politician across the spectrum, regarded as a decent guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he mounted a constitutional challenge to the vaccine mandates, announced it a week ago, and... Uh, stating that, see, they put an emergency provision in the Charter saying that under certain emergency conditions, mm-hmm. true emergencies, that Charter rights could be suspended in the case of a national emergency. But he's not convinced in the least that the COVID epidemic, even at its height, constituted such an emergency. He said that was not the intent of the drafters and certainly doesn't constitute that emergency now. And so he talked me through this, and I thought, well, isn't this interesting? We have a person who actually drafted the Charter of Rights saying that, the, and a former premier of a major province, saying that the government is acting in an essentially unconstitutional manner. I don't think that's ever happened in the history of a Western democracy. And I said, well, okay, that's something. Um, he's 82 now, sharp as a tack. Uh, why do you want to announce this on my podcast? because that's preposterous. And he said, well, our team has talked it over, and we don't think there's one news source in Canada that will handle this credibly. And I thought, that's not good. So we released that a week and a half ago, which was timed very nicely, as it turned out, Mm -hmm. with the truckers' protest, because people are saying, well, are the truckers breaking the law? And the question is, well, just exactly who's breaking the law here? And that's by no means obvious. And so... That was extremely helpful. And then about a few days after that, I released another video calling on the conservative types in Canada to seize the moment, given this popular uprising and the fact that 
countries all over the world are dropping the COVID mandates to seize the moment and drop the mandates at a provincial level. It's enough is enough. And somebody's got to be the first actor. And so that got a million and a half views in no time flat. And so I'm able to play a useful role as a, well, on the media front, weirdly enough, but also as a, a someone who's standing apart from the, from the details of the political fray. I mean, I get that. But, you know, it's like saying if Reagan would have stayed being the B actor or at GE going, getting paid a million dollars a year to go around the world and talking about his political philosophies and how great GE is or president of SAG, would he have been able to tell Gorbachev to take that wall down? I don't think so. Would he have influenced a country like Russia to become a little bit more free where people are staying? They're not leaving. They're a little bit more comfortable staying there because now there's a capitalistic opportunity. It's no longer communism. Karl Marx and Engel and those guys don't have the influence that they had before because Stalin and Lenin and what travesty they did to people. Does that credit go to Gorbachev? Does it go to who? It goes to Reagan, right? So if you think about Churchill and Chamberlain, Goes to Solzhenitsyn too. And, I, I, I totally and, get and that. He, he was a writer, obviously a writer, and so it's look. I mean, it's not like you know what I'm saying. There though. isn't. It's not like the the political domain doesn't have its purpose and its function. And but there's a lot I would have to stop doing if I did that, and it isn't obvious to me that that's the right thing for me to do. Partly again because I s- started doing what I'm doing back in say probably 1985. Because I realized that one of the pathways to totalitarian catastrophe was deceit at the individual level. Yeah. This is something that Solzhenitsyn made very much of, Orwell as well, Huxley as well. These great thinkers concluded in the aftermath of these totalitarian catastrophes that there was an integral link between pathology at the individual level, which was fundamentally the willingness to use deceit in an instrumental manner. I'll lie to you to get what I want and authoritarian catastrophe, and that it was a direct causal link, and I actually buy that argument. Mm -hmm. I think that's literally true. And so partly what I'm doing, I hope, is helping people walk through thinking about why telling the truth is a good idea, not not only for them, not not as a top-down, shake-your-finger moral injunction, Mm -hmm. don't lie, you shouldn't lie, but in, an, in a detailed manner to explain the relationship between the instrumental use of deceit and the collapse of civilizations. And that connection is way closer than people think. Mm-hmm. You know, so one person is influences a thousand people, for sure, in their lifetime, and sometimes a lot more than that. And a thousand, you know, the next rung out from that, a thousand times a thousand is a million, and the next rung out from that is a billion. And so you're always at the center of a concentric circle that two rungs out contains a billion people. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that what you do matters. And basically what I'm doing, I hope, is touring and talking to people face-to-face in these lectures, for example, and making the case that it's a terrifying case. Everyone says, well, we want meaning in our life. It's... (laughs) Do you now? (laughs) Do you now? Because you might ask yourself, what's the more threatening possibility? That nothing you do matters, which means you can pretty much do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. That's the upside of that nihilistic claim, no responsibility, right? And why why not pursue narrow-focused hedonism since nothing matters anyways? So that's the shadow of nihilism. Or everything you do matters. And it's a lot more terrifying to contemplate that, is that you will be held accountable for everything you do. And I believe that firmly, 
partly as a consequence of my clinical experience. I never saw any one of my clinical clients ever get away with anything, even once. And you think, well, people get away with things all the time. It's like, no, they don't. They might gain a narrow advantage in one dimension in the short term. But, you know, let's say that you, you're, you use deceit in your business practices. First of all, that doesn't work very well because people will figure you out. So long as a long-term nope. as a, as a long strategy, right. it's terrible. Yep. It just doesn't work. Yep. No one is going to play with you if you're a cheat. But let's say that someone asked, me, someone asked me the other day, well, what about these dictators that, that uh, you know, ruled their whole life and, and they were at the top of the hierarchy, let's say, and they had all the power. Stalin's a perfectly good example. It's like, didn't he win? Well... Everyone Stalin ever talked to lied to him because they were absolutely bloody terrified of him. His country was a nightmare. It was a hell or as close as we've been able to produce with the possible exception of the Nazis and the Maoists. But it was up there in terms of hell. And did he rule? Yes, but he ruled hell. And if you think that's a victory, well, go ahead and try it and see how much of a victory it is. Mm -hmm. You know, Milton Satan said, I'd rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. It's like, fair enough. Go ahead. Use deceit, use instrumentality, rule in hell. You'll be the ruler. See how much good it does you. See where that takes you. It takes you somewhere terrible. And so I'm much more interested in talking those things through with people. And I do do political work, but, but it, I, it's not the right thing for me. I got the last question for you on this, and then we can move on to oh, the next okay. topic. So uh, uh, Churchill, you know, his writing, what he did, kind of started like you at a very young age. He's not, he's a guy that if you follow his writing, the guy's done a lot of stuff, right? And then eventually last minute, hey, we can't figure this guy out from Germany. We need your help. Chamberlain stepped away. Hey, goes and recruits the guy that he hates the most. And we know how uh, history ends up. We speak in English today, big part of because of Churchill. But this is the last question. You know uh, how you said, at this phase of my life, this is what I'm doing. Do you think... Um, do you think the right thing to do is what, what's always what we want to do? Or sometimes we have to do things that maybe uh, 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 the world or family or somebody else is relying on us to make a decision that's more impactful than, to the world than what would be more fruitful to us? I think that happens a lot. You know, I have a, a, a I don't know, a fantasy, I suppose. And I don't know how well thought through it is. But one of the things I've been thinking about doing is I'm, I'm writing another book at the moment, which I plan to publish in the next year and a half or something like that. It's called We Who Wrestle With God. And, um, and perhaps there'll be a tour associated with that. And I want to do a public lecture series on Exodus. But I've been per pursuing more artistic endeavors recently again uh, in detail. I did some of that in when I first went to graduate school, I made a variety of paintings and, and so forth. That, and I really liked doing that. And I really like doing this. I've been working on a musical project with a friend of mine and with my family, which is really, it's really fun. I really like it a lot. And I wrote a screenplay that's a musical, which I really enjoyed doing. I have seemed to have somewhat of a gift for writing verse, weirdly enough, um, especially amusing verse. I, I think it's amusing and some other people have thought so. And it's really playful and fun. And I think I could do that. I could do a lot of that. And it would be, in many ways, less demanding than what I'm doing now. Um, and I've talked to my family about that. But they seem to think that, you know, when, when my wife and I planned this tour, 
I was unbelievably ill still, and it just seemed like a pipe dream that this was ever going to occur. But mm. if we were going to try it, we had to do it months in advance. And so, but, you know, I, I outlined the tour for her with my agents, and she said, I asked her when we got off the phone, I said, do you want to do this? And she said, yes. And I was quite surprised at that, actually. I mean, Tammy had been unbelievably ill for months and months and months, like at death's doorstep every day for like eight months. It was awful. And yet she was on board and, you know, it's, it's got this great adventurous element to it. And it seems to your point that the time is right for it, whatever it is. And so away we go. And that's what we're doing. And it, it would be possible in principle for me to be in my cabin up north and record music and engage in artistic activities and be with her and my family in, in a more private way. Now, I don't know if I'm suited for that, you know, the, so that's why I'm saying, well, maybe it's a pipe dream, um, because I really like being as busy as I can possibly be all the time, you know, and I've kind of trained myself for that. I started training myself for that really when I went to graduate school, because I wanted to find out how much I could do. And I like running at top speed all the time. And so maybe I wouldn't be suited for that, you know. And uh, Although the days we've spent, the weeks we've spent engaged in it, um, I have an art book coming out, a strange art project. It's going to cause all sorts of trouble. Coming out probably in September or October and a bunch of music that will accompany that, uh, which is also going to cause a lot of trouble, I believe. Um, I really enjoyed doing it. It's, it's really engrossing and fun and playful and... Mm -hmm. And I liked working on this screenplay. We've got a bunch of music being recorded for it, and that's called The Water of Life, the screenplay. It's a great old fairy tale. So, but to your point, sorry, you have a responsibility beyond the narrow confines, let's say, of a particular interest, even if it's an artistic interest, a valid sure. interest. And, sure. And you play the role that is set in front of you that constitutes the best path forward. And there's obviously a market for what I'm discussing a market, let's say, an interested audience. And so, and I love doing that too. That's the other thing. Yeah. I love doing hey, it. Pat, yeah. can I ask you a question? Because yeah. I think the line of questioning that you're asking yeah. Dr. Peterson is, overall, you're talking about being the reluctant hero. That was the sort of the initial analogy that you gave, you gave with Joe Rogan, where like the guy said, no, that's not what Joe is. Joe is not trying to be a hero. And you're like, sometimes, you know, it's not who you want to be, it's who people need you to be. I mean, it's like the... Joe the, isn't trying to be a hero. No, he's, he's just not, being a all. hero. No, no. Okay, correct. Zero. Yeah. But, but, you know, it's almost like Neo from The Matrix. He's yeah. like, uh, it's like, we need you. You're the chosen one. He's like, yeah. whoa, what are you talking about? So Pat, essentially what he's asking you is like, Lincoln, you know, Churchill, uh, Trump even. These are people, whether they were reluctant heroes or not, these are people that had cha have changed the world. And you're more saying like, look... Sigmund Freud, Gandhi, uh, you know, more the philosophical line. But ultimately what I think Pat is getting at is like who changes the world more? Dignitaries, presidents, prime ministers, or thinkers? Thinkers. And, and you say it's thinkers. So no, that's no, for sure it's thinkers. Okay, so that is ultimately and that's the, even the why someone, that you guys are yeah, having right yeah, now. Both but, Churchill and Lincoln there you are go. good that's examples. The so, I mean, they're a melding of the two. That's and a that's thinker what makes and a leader. Really unique. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that's ultimately what your line of questioning yeah, no, all was, I'm right? saying is, listen, all I'm saying is the following. I'm sitting there looking at a lot of guys that should, their, should throw their name in the, and go out there and compete, and they're not. 
Yeah, and, and, that's a problem. Yeah. And, okay, so well, we could have Well, that. look, a lot of the yeah. people I know <clears throat> who would make, <clears throat> excuse me, who would make extraordinarily competent political leaders. So these are people who've built exceptionally complicated enterprises from the bottom up in an extremely creative and diligent way and who mastered that. They won't throw their hat in the political ring, partly because they have other things they're doing that are they regard as more significant, and often they are. And this is a big problem because what it means is that, perhaps, is that the pool of qualified political candidates is much narrower than it might otherwise be. So, and that's something you're obviously wrestling with ethically. You know, when are you, when are you called upon to throw your hat in the ring, in some sense, despite your own personal interests? I don't have any contempt for the political arena. You know, I think it's a big mistake for people. People go from naive to cynical, and then they think cynicism is wisdom, and it is compared mm -hmm. to naivety, but it's not compared to what comes after cynicism, which is something like courageous trust, and that's the right attitude towards to, have, to have towards the political sphere. And often people don't want to take the risk of courageous trust, and so they justify that avoidance with their cynicism. I'm not like that. I know the political realm is valuable and necessary, and... And I don't have contempt for it, and I don't think anyone should. It's, it's a mistake, because it's your system, man, and you're sovereign. You're a sovereign individual. It's your system. If it's corrupt, that's on you, like in, a, in a definite sense. And people say, well, there isn't anything I can do as one person. It's like Joe Rogan's one person. And he didn't, he, his success is really remarkable. First of all, you can't just push it aside as, chance because Rogan was a good fighter and that's hard and then he was a good comedian and that's really hard maybe no harder than being a fighter but hard and then he had a pretty good tv career and that's hard too People forget he was on news radio which was yeah like, yeah I, I mean was good Ro at Rogan's Rogan's established his, yes exactly he established his credibility in three different domains and then it's also extremely difficult to be a good interviewer you actually mm -hmm. have to listen yeah and he listens and so, and so Rogan's, Rogan's a very good example of someone who, as an individual, stayed closely allied with the truth and has had, well, his, we have no idea what his impact is going to be because Rogan has 11 million listeners per episode now. I see absolutely no reason why he won't have 20 million listeners per episode in a year, especially if people keep trying to take him out. And it's so funny, especially watching CNN go after him. You know, they're all treating the, the mainstream media. They keep treating Joe like he's the fringe. I think, are you people, well, I know, you're, these legacy news media sources are dying. All their really competent people have already gone off to do other things because they could. And, and they're, they're, they're living in like 1975, which is a very weird place to live at the moment. And they look at Rogan and they think, what did the CNN guy who was criticizing the other day said? We have all these departments devoted to yeah. news analysis. Brian and Rogan Stelter, is, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Rogan is just winging it. It's like, you try winging it, buddy, in front of 11 million people and see how successful you would think that's easy, dancing on a tightrope where any word you say that's false is going to result in, well, complete and utter pillorying of you from multiple news media sources all over the world every day which is what's happened to Joe nonstop in the last month, despite the fact that he hasn't said anything stupid. So wing it. You think that's so easy. 
It's yeah. not so easy. And look what he's done. It's like, it's amazing. And all he's done, all... What do you think is going to happen with him with Spotify? Oh, Spotify won't, won't remove Rogan? You don't think so? What are They'd the be odds? out of their mind. They, what are the they, odds? They, they dropped from $60 billion valuation to 36. That's $24 billion. You think the board is sitting there, they're diehard Joe Rogan fans, or do you think they're profit margin top line revenue fans? Oh, I hope that, I would rather that they were the latter, the profit okay. margin types, because that's what a corporation should do. And I'd trust them more if they were doing that. I'm with you. But I also yeah. think that if they have any sense, and I know how this is going to turn out, it's, it's turned out in my life like 50 times this way. Yeah. The heat goes on, the pressure's on, you're in the desert, it's unpleasant. You wait it out. You wait it out. You wait it out. If you haven't done anything wrong, you wait it out. You don't apologize. You don't back down. You wait, and things viciously turn in your favor. Now, waiting it out while you're roasting, that's not pleasant. And if the Spotify yeah. types have any sense, they think, yeah, well, that's a drop. But, you know, it's part of the death throes of the legacy media. And once all the dust settles, CNN will have half the viewers they have now, and Joe Rogan will have twice the viewers, and we'll be doing just fine. And Rogan, as long as he keeps doing what he's doing, he came out on Instagram. This is so funny. He came out on Instagram to talk about all this a few days ago, and I thought, you nailed it, Joe. He came out and he said, it's a paraphrase, and I'm going to do it a bit comedically. He basically said, well, everyone knows I'm kind of a lunkhead, and I have lots to learn, and I probably haven't managed this like perfectly because I do my own scheduling, and I just talk to people I'm interested in, and so possibly I could have presented a more balanced view some of the time, and I'll try to do better in the future. And so all the legacy media said, Joe Rogan apologizes, which is not really the case. Mm -hmm. And then he talked about how much he liked Neil Young, and none of this was for show, and none of this was, was He's as sincere PR. as it gets. Absolutely. Yeah. And he what, told the story when he was at a Neil Young concert. I mean, he's genuinely a fan you know, of security. It was, was great, man. And right. so as long as Rogan keeps doing that, and I, he's been doing it for five years, and he's, it's not like he hasn't faced pressure before, it's clear to me that he's... I just can't see any scenario short of his assassination that ends up in Rogan not having 20 million viewers an episode in a year. And so, as long as he's careful, like he is, I don't think Rogan can be cancelled. So even if Spotify dumps him, it's like, who's dumping who here? Rogan, he's on Spotify. It's not necessarily. Spotify might be on Rogan. It's not so clear. <laughs> and so, what, what's going to happen? They kick him off? Well, he'll just have another platform, like, tomorrow. Immediately. Yeah, and he'll have yeah. all the money Spotify sure. gave him, which was actually quite no, a lot of money. More. He'll have yeah, way more. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, he'll like, have way more. Did you, hear, did you see what Pat had to say about this topic yesterday? I don't know. I, I think Rogan is a billion-dollar guy. I think uh, Elon needs to sign a 20-year, $50 million-year contract with Rogan and start a company, like a social media company. Choose which route you want to go, direct competitor to YouTube, to Google, to... It's not like Elon hasn't done it. He didn't create a company that was revolutionary. He went against cars. Cars have been around for a while. Well, he didn't invent rockets. cars. Yeah, but what I'm saying is cars and rockets have been around, so it's not like he went and invented the rocket or invented a car. You don't need to invent something. Just go direct against YouTube. Go direct against Spotify. Go And Elon and Rogan could pull it off with the help of Peter Thiel, It'll work itself out, and they'll recruit the right people. They'll make a few phone calls, and the world's going to come saying, hey, if you'd like to have a platform for free thinkers and where you're not going to be censored, give us a call or you know, do this, and it would take off. But going back to the yeah. question with you, you know, I watch you when you get interviewed, and I say this to myself. I'm like, okay, 
<laughs> Here's a clinical psychologist. Okay, what does he do for a living? Uh, you you are in the you you listen to every you know prop you know whatever problems you hear people tell you right. If you really don't want to entertain an idea and you want to push it away, you'll do it in your own creative way. You're you you're a, you're a uh, you're a heavyweight cha- you know heavyweight type of guy that's gone up against everybody, and you know how to handle a topic that you don't want to uh, ha- you don't want to talk about or give the answer to. You're a pro. You've been around the block for a while. I just think for you, you know, to to uh, uh, think about like right now when we're talking about, I think as an individual we can make more impact than being a PM or being a president or somebody like that. Uh, Canada is in shambles right now because of Trudeau's policies. Canada's shut down right now because of Trudeau's well, policies. It's not just Trudeau. You know, there's lots of conservative premiers in Canada well, who've done exactly the well, same thing. Well, it's, flip it. it. If Trudeau's philosophies were different, the other guys wouldn't be able to do what they're doing. If Trudeau had the influence at the top, it would have been open. Can you pull up the Mark, uh, the John Hopkins article? I just want to read oh, this yeah. and get, get uh, Jordan's <laughs> That uh, article. Yeah. So, so here's a, CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, WAPO, Washington Post, completely avoid John Hopkins' study, finding uh, COVID lockdowns ineffective. FYI, would you say John Hopkins is a conservative organization like Hoover Institute no. or Heritage? They're no, not, Johns right? Hopkins is one of the most reliable medical, scientific research enterprises, universities, in the world, bar none. That's very important so, for people. Yeah, John Hopkins is you're extremely like, reliable. Yeah. So it's not like it's a CNN. No, no, or a this Fox is like Har- this is Harvard, exactly. Oxford, Cambridge level. Thanks. Johns Hopkins, especially I'm, in the medical domain. So watch this: ABC, CBS, NBC also ignored the anti-lockdown study. So go up. Let me read this. So here we go. There has been a full-on media blackout in the study online. The ineffectiveness of lockdowns to prevent COVID deaths. According to John Hopkins University meta-analysis of several studies, lockdowns during first COVID wave in spring of 2020 only reduced COVID mortality by 0.2%. That is not a lot. In U.S. and in Europe, while the meta-analysis concludes that lockdowns have had little to no public health effect, they have imposed enormous economic and social costs where they have been adopted, the researcher wrote. In consequence, lockdowns policies are ill-founded and should be rejected as a pandemic policy instrument. If you can go a little higher, I want to read the next two, and I'll get Jordan thoughts. However, the Johns Hopkins study received no mention on any of the five liberal networks this week, according to uh, Grabian uh, transcripts. CNN, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, NBC all ignored anti-lockdowns findings after having spent much of the pandemic shaming red states with minimal restrictions and events deemed by critics as super spreaders. It wasn't just the networks avoiding the study. The New York Times, the Washington Post, the Associated Press, Reuters, USA Today, Axios, Politico, amongst other outlets also tuned a, black, a blind eye to the findings according to search results. Mm-hmm. Jordan, how important is this research? Like, how important is, is this analysis that we're reading here right now? What does well, this tell I us? Well, I should tell you what a meta-analysis is Please. to begin with. Well, imagine there's a group of studies done on a particular topic, and you write a review, and you try to interpret the findings. Uh, that was called a narrative review. You, you use your opinion, in some sense, to wade through the data and try to understand what the compilation of studies reveals. Well, there were techniques developed 25 years ago that are statistical where you can aggregate the statistical results from studies statistically. So you do a statistical analysis of all the statistical analysis, and that's a meta-analysis, and hypothetically it's more objective. And there's some truth to that claim. You still have to select which studies to include, but I, I don't believe that that was a detriment in this particular case. And so solid methodology 
And it's basically something approximating a cost-benefit analysis, and that has its that's tough too because it's not that easy to assign costs and benefits in a quantitative manner. Having said all that, it's well, it's an amazing study, not only because of what it reveals, which is a 0.2% decline in overall mortality, but also in that the the researchers felt so strongly about their findings that they came right out and said that this was ineffective policy. And that isn't that common for researchers who generally hold off on drawing that sorts of conclusions. They, they kind of lay out the facts. Not a black and, and white. They're typically not going to come out as black and white is what you're saying? Yes, yes, okay. exactly, exactly. And so, so that's, that's really something. We rush to imitate a totalitarian state in panic. And the consequence of that, according to this study, was there's zero... There's nothing positive about it. Now, I've talked with some Democrats about this study because they were paying attention to it. And their response is something like, well, it did help control hospital overrun. And time will tell whether or not that's true. I think the data suggesting that COVID vaccines decreased the seriousness of illness when people contracted COVID who were vaccinated I think that data is credible. I could be wrong about that because things are being done in a rush and it's very difficult to draw appropriate scientific conclusions in a rush. But I think the bulk of the information suggests that. But I also think that is not how they were marketed and that was not the initial intent to merely reduce severity of the illness. It was to reduce transmission and, and so forth. And, and then, of course, this is a cost-benefit analysis which says, yeah, there was some gain on that front, conceivably, maybe, although all-cause mortality doesn't seem to have gone down much at all, but the economic, the secondary consequences were devastating. And, well, we don't even know what the secondary consequences are yet. You know, the here's one secondary consequence, which is revealed in what you just read. The collusion of the press and the government. Like, how do you know that's not worse than the epidemic? It could easily be worse than the epidemic. Or the idea that now we've been uh, coerced into having to share our medical information with people all through the bureaucratic hierarchy, all the way down to servers and restaurants. So we've trained people that that's okay to ask and also to offer. Is that worse than the pandemic? Well, these are... Arguably, all of this involves violation of our fundamental rights. Where's the evidence that that's not worse? Well, we're going to see it play out. Well, the collusion between the press and the government, that's so intense in Canada, as I already said, when the premier of ex-premier of Newfoundland wanted to launch his constitutional challenge, he couldn't use a mainstream news source. I mean, that's a bloody catastrophe. Much as I dislike CBC, which is a lot, by the way, I think that it's an absolute catastrophe that it's come to that. And that's just one of, you know, two consequences mm. of the lockdown. There's the supply chain problem. That's a big one. You know, I, my publisher, Penguin, told me a week and a half ago, we were talking about putting out a two-volume set of my last two books, which I would really like to do. They're going to do that in Great Britain. I, I think that people would turn to it as a gift for graduations and so on. That would be a nice set for that. Um, they told me they can't get paper. And this is Penguin Random House, <laughs> right? And it's paper. 
paper isn't that complex, given how complex everything is. The fact that there are paper shortages, that's a big deal. I was in a Mazda dealership in Canada a couple of, be a couple of months ago now. They had one car. One isn't very many cars. You know, and, and so we have no idea what the supply line crunch is going to produce in terms of economic catastrophe. And then the, the next issue is, well, how about all the money we've been printing? You know, we've already seen that produce a massive bubble expansion in housing prices. That's being driven by other factors. Yep. How do we know that's not worse than the pandemic? You know, it could easily be. I'm not saying that it is I, because I don't know, but that's the issue. I don't know. And this is partly why this mad rush to impose top-down solutions to complex problems, this is in some sense what makes me a conservative insofar as I am, it's part of the caution I learned as a social scientist. Social scientists, I'll give you an example. This is a good example. I worked with this woman named Joan McCord, and she was one of America's great criminologists and uh, a, 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 a woman who was involved as a faculty member when very few women were. She participated in a study in, in, in Boston, in Somerville, which was a working class community back in the 30s. They did the first large scale intervention to deflect children from a criminal pathway. So they're looking at deprived inner city kids thinking they have a higher probability than average to become criminal and, and to suffer all sorts of other negative consequences as well, or to inflict them. And perhaps you could intervene at an early age and, and stop that, or slow it down at least. And so they put together a very comprehensive set of interventions, um, parental lessons for the parents, uh, lessons for the kids, uh, health and nutrition interventions, uh, a whole broad spectrum of all the things you think. In that you, this was in the United States, in Somerville, okay, Massachusetts, it. famous study, the Somerville study. Um, one of the first large-scale psychological public health interventions, I would say, and targeting a problem that was troublesome for left-wing people and mm -hmm. right-wing people mm -hmm. alike. The right-wingers would think, well, fewer criminals, that's good. And the left-wingers would think, well, let's do some remediation at the root of the cause. So everyone was hoping this worked, and everyone was happy about it. The kids thought it was good. The parents thought it was good. The researchers thought it was good. Uh, they also put kids, they took the kids out of the inner city in the summer and put them out in camp because of nature and all of that, and wouldn't that be a nice break for them? And then they did the analysis. And the kids in the intervention group did worse on virtually every measure. Worse. Like substantially worse. And so they were all shocked and seriously shocked in a major way. In fact, Joan McCord was so shocked she spent the rest of her life going around talking about what had happened. It turns out that it's a really bad idea to group antisocial prone kids together in camps in the summer. Because they learn to compete with each other in terms of the manifestation of antisocial mm -hmm. behavior, and they get better at it. It's like criminal camp. And so that single consequence of one part of the intervention was so negative that it overwhelmed the entire study and, and produced negative results. So McCord, she was part of a group of very, very able social scientists that I worked with when I was in Montreal, a broad group, you know, and it was an international group. And they beat the drum all the time. Never, 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 never do a large-scale intervention without building in an evaluation. 
25% of your intervention budget should be evaluation because you do not know that your stupid intervention, which you think will do what it, you think it will do, that's just a guess. It's a guess. And it could go wildly wrong in 10 ways you don't predict. And if you've ever run studies in a lab trying to predict how people are going to behave, you figure this out real soon because they don't behave the way, what was the old idea? Put a lab rat in a cage under controlled conditions and the rat will do exactly what it damn well chooses to do. And that's true for rats. It's even more true for people. And so these large-scale interventions, which the pandemic lockdown was certainly one of those, is like, and this is the conservative objection. The law, iron law of unintended consequences. Do something large scale to systems you don't understand at all, not a bit. You know, we have just-in-time supply now, right? And you think about how efficient an economy has to be to rely on just-in-time supply. So it used to be that if you ran an industry, and uh, maybe you're making, uh, you're, you're a car manufacturer, you have a warehouse full of parts. But the parts are just sitting there, and so that's like money invested that's not accruing any interest. It's a cost, and you have to store it. That's cost. And so that's an expense. And so maybe you want to just have your parts supplier supply the parts exactly when you need them. And then maybe the parts supplier has to get the metal just exactly when they need it, mm. and so on, all the way down to the miners. And maybe that's in China. Then you think there's 30 steps there, and every bloody thing has to work absolutely perfectly on time for that to work at all. And then you, you throw a lockdown into that. It's like, well, you've never run a business. You have no idea how, thing, how complicated things are. You think electricity comes out of plugins in the wall. You know, that's not a complicated problem. You just put the plug in and there's the electricity. And you muck things up in 50 different directions. And that's what we've done. And God only knows what we've done. And then this issue that the, you know, the mainstream press won't cover this. You think me, the reason they're not is just purely embarrassed the fact that this is going to Lose, lose even more credibility with the audience that what we've been saying this entire time, we've been wrong. We haven't done real, true investigative no, I journalism. No, I don't think that's it. I think, no, I don't think that's it. If, if that was the reason, I could understand that reason. I think it's part of this implicit and explicit collusion. It's like, this isn't the story, and so we're not going to report it. And I think that yeah. economically, even that's a foolish decision because Newsweek, I've, I've been reading Newsweek recently, Newsweek has some journalists. They actually have some real information again, which is quite interesting. It's still a left, though. It's still a liberal magazine. It, yeah, yeah, but, but my, my experience yeah. has been in the last couple of months. I thought, oh, Very my cool. God, there's some actual news yeah. in Newsweek. And so that was, that was really cool. Know. But I see all this not only as collusion, which is absolutely appalling. So that's the death of journalism because journalists are colluding with politicians. It's like, well, they're not journalists anymore. And they're also not politicians. Because if they were politicians and journalists, they wouldn't be colluding. Whatever they are, as a consequence of this collusion, is not politicians and journalists. It's some completely new thing. Now, I'm less worried about it than I might be, because I also see it as part of the inevitable death spiral of the legacy media. They're dead. And why? Well, they don't have a monopoly over the dissemination of information at all. YouTube, for all of its flaws, which are manifold, is an unbelievably powerful and accessible technology no where the cost of entry is zero. It's like no TV station can com compete with that, period. They're done. And then these print media sources, especially when they're great people, Barry Weiss might be example, leave because they can't say what they want to. They don't have to lose much of their talent before all they've got left is hacks. And then everyone can publish to an international audience instantly online. 
So part of what we're seeing in the mainstream media is a technologically fueled death spiral. And I know how large corporations die. So there's this principle, Pareto principle, which is that the square root of the number of people in a given creative enterprise do half the work. And so if you're a news organization with a thousand people, 30 of them do half the work. And you think, no, and you can think that all you want, but you're just wrong because this is one of the most well-established findings in social science, period. So you got a thousand people and 970 of them are putting in time and 30 of them are doing half the work. And then something shifts. Those people can't say what they want to say, let's say. The 30. The 30. Well, yeah. what do they do? Well, they leave. Why? Because they can. Right? These are people. They're un these are competent people. They're really smart. They're on the edge. They're tough. They have immense networks of connections. As soon as the ship rocks, they think, ciao, you think I need you. It's like you got, you got your priorities wrong. You need me. They go off like Barry Weiss did and start their own thing. And so then you're left with the 970 that was only doing half the work. Yep. And then the next 30 competent people leave. And soon all you've got is people who run the legacy media. And they, just, and they say things like, well, Joe Rogan, people shouldn't listen to him because he just wings it. It's like, how clueless can you possibly be? Or, or, or you have people like at CNN who treat Rogan like he's an outsider, despite the fact that he's pulling in numbers that are at least five, five to eight times their average viewership. Joe is fringe. It's like, really? We'll see who's fringe here. And so, and part of this is purely technological. It's like, there's no way these legacy apparatuses can compete. How can they? Printing, is fr printing with universal distribution is free. Video with universal distribution is free. How can a network possibly compete? It can't. So spiral death. And as they die, they lose their editors, they lose their fact, fact checkers, they lose their good journalists, they lose everybody with courage, and then they put out pablum and, they, and they're tempted by clickbait because that's what you have to do while you're dying. It's like, Christ, we have to attract attention somehow. So you say, well, Joe Rogan apologized and everybody clicks on it and they read it and they think that's a lie. And so you've lost another 5% yeah. of your viewership. CNN is probably sitting in their board meetings uh, saying, God, please, we need Trump to be president again. Because when he was president, we were making money. We, we need somebody like that to be president. They're begging this guy to come back. Can you imagine if CNN uh, ends up uh, like putting him on left and right to, and then, you know, to berate him? But at the same time, they're getting more eyeballs. But going back to it, okay. So, Jordan, let's just say you are the PM of Canada. Let's just play this let's just say game, okay? Um, and you watch the decisions Justin made. He's your PM. You live in that country. How he handled truckers, how he handled vaccine, how he handled lockdowns, how he handled everything. How would you have handled some of those things if you were the PM of Canada? Well, I, I'd have to say that I don't know because those decisions are extremely complicated, you know, and, and it's, it's very hard to speculate. I do have something to say about that, though, uh, that I think is relevant. When I watch Mr. Trudeau through, through the lenses that I've developed over the years, I see someone who never, ever says a true word. And so I've met lots of people like that. They're, they're all persona. And everything they do is crafted, in a sense, to obtain what they think is appropriate in the situation, whatever that might be. It's all instrumentality. And so when Mr. Trudeau comes out and addresses his audiences, 
It's all a, it's all a game. It's all an act. All of it. And so what I would hope I would have done differently if I was in that position is I would have said what I thought and hope that that I always think that's the way that carries the day. It doesn't mean you're right, because what the hell do you know? But at least it means you're engaging in the process that might make you right if you opened up your eyes and your ears and listened, right? And so what to do isn't, in a complex situation, in some sense, isn't as important as how you do it, right? What approach do you take when, when, when the chips are down and, and things are tense? The good politicians that I've met and this is relevant to this, they listen. You know, they go out among their people, actually go out, and they listen to them. And that way they learn what to do. And that's not opinion polls. Opinion polls are, and our, my, my country, and yours to a large degree, is ruled by opinion polls to a degree you can, can't possibly imagine because the politicians won't take responsibility for saying what they think, and so then they default to their handlers, and their handlers rely on opinion polls, and opinion polls provide a bad short-term sample of people's careless thoughts. And you think, well, you're following the public. It's, no, you're not. The entire parliamentary system is set up to follow the public in an intelligent way. It's not easy to figure out what people think or what they want. It isn't even e easy for individuals to figure out what they themselves think or want. It's really hard. And these traditions that we've set up of representative democracy are ways of listening to the people that are measured and thoughtful and long-term. And they're being supplanted by idiot opinion polls that are run by people who have instrumental desires. They want to win the next election. And I know you have to win the damn next election, you know. But pandering to a mob who's frightened because you scared them, that doesn't constitute leadership. It's certainly not democracy. There's a reason we don't have direct democracy. There's a reason for that. It's like rule by impulse. It's not a good structure. It's not a good strategy. Mm -hmm. We're, we figured that out a long time ago. Our, our organizations are way too large and complex for anything like direct democracy to work. We're gonna, what, have, a, we're gonna have a vote on every issue? Like, obviously not. People just don't have the expertise for that. And it's not like they shouldn't be consulted. They absolutely should be. The voice of the people is the sovereign master of the political enterprise. But what a leader does is aggregate that voice. I'll give you an example. This is a good example. What a leader does is aggravate aggregate that, vo aggregate aggregate that, that voice. voice. Yes, yes, yes. Collects it, collects it. So I, I interviewed Jimmy Carr, the British comedian. He's very, very smart, Carr. And I asked him how he did what he did. And I kind of knew this from other comedians I've talked to. He said, the comedy, stand-up comedy, is the most dialogical of all the artistic enterprises. I thought, well, what do you mean by that? Because you actually, you have a monologue. What do you mean it's dialogical? And he said, well, before I go out on a tour, and he's had a couple of successful world tours, so that's pretty good when you're that funny. That's amazing. He said he'd go out and do 100 shows. Rogan does the same thing. All the comedians do the same thing. Uh, 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 Louis C.K. does this. They all do it. They go to small clubs, and they try out their material. So they're sitting at home trying to be funny, and sometimes they are, and sometimes they're not. And then they go to an audience, and they lay out some jokes, and sometimes people laugh a lot, and sometimes they don't. And so the comedians who do this repeatedly listen 
and then they collect all the things that people think are funny. And so, mm -hmm. isn't that so cool? Is that you don't even have to be that funny, in some sense, to be a comedian. You have to be a little bit funny, and then you really have to listen. And so, if you go out to your audience and you tell them jokes, and they tell you what's funny, then you can collect all the things that everyone thinks is funny, and then you can go on a world tour and just say things that everyone thinks are funny. Exactly. It's so cool. It's it, that that's the pathway to Hence, that. Hence, aggregate. Aggr exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so, and the comedians are doing mm -hmm. what what a political leader who ha who who is functioning properly does. It, they're doing exactly mm -hmm. the same thing. Um, I, I talked in, at length to a Canadian politician, Preston Manning. He's uh, on the right of the, of the political spectrum. Um, and he built a political party from scratch in Canada and became the leader of the opposition, which is no trivial thing to do in the span of a single lifetime or even in the fraction of a career, which is what he did. And he told me um, that what he really liked was going out to make a speech, but that wasn't the party he really liked. He really liked the question period. Because people would just tell him what they were concerned about, and then he derived the policies for his party as a consequence of addressing those concerns. So it was really a bottom-up enterprise. And so I would hope that had I been in that position, I would do what I'm doing when I'm on my tour, which is watching people and listening to them and then responding. And this happens, first of all, when I lecture which isn't exactly the right word. When I explore ideas in front of people, I'm watching them like a hawk, blinded as I am by the lights, you know. But I'm watching to see if people are following and, and modifying what I'm saying to make sure that everybody's staying on the track. And then I have thousands of people, I have had thousands of people meet me in meet and greets after the talks and then on the street. And I always listen to them. And so then I can address that, those concerns. Mm. And then that keeps the situation dynamic, right? And so in, in, in the UK, in the House of Parliament, there's this great dome at the center of the building, and it's the lobby. And that's where the word lobbyist comes from, by the way. And the U citizens of the UK have the right to enter the lobby and petition their, their member of parliament at any time, essentially. And so the lobby is where the voice of the people meets the voice of their representatives. And it's the center of the British House of Parliament. And it's, it's built that way architecturally, which is so brilliant. It's, it's stunningly brilliant, the way that that's laid out. And that's exactly right, because the people are somewhat inarticulate, like the truckers. Like, they're not making an argument in some sense. They're bringing their trucks to Ottawa. Mm -hmm. right? They're that's showing, not telling. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And, 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 and people who aren't primarily intellectual, let's say, they have to act out their moral presuppositions in a more concrete manner. But that doesn't mean they're wrong at all. It doesn't mean that at all. Um, and so then the job of a leader is to note that inarticulate expression and to give it voice publicly in, in speeches, let's say, but also to have that voice manifest itself in the body of laws that governs all of us. That's how the system works. And so, and the alternative is to dismiss that. And that's not a good alternative. Uh, or to demonize it, which is... I want to read this to you because it yeah. goes kind of based on what you're saying. Here's a Yahoo News story. Trudeau flees as trucker convoys enters Ottawa. As thousands of protesters enter Ottawa, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his family were moved 
from their home to an undisclosed location somewhere in the city on Saturday afternoon due to security concerns. A freedom convoy of some 2,700 truckers entered the Canadian capital of Ottawa Saturday to protest through those Trudeau's uh, COVID-19. security concerns. Yeah, security concerns. Mm-hmm. This is a PM. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So COVID-19 policies, uh, according to the Independent, around 100 big rigs blockade, blockaded a main street running past the Canadian Parliament building. So that's going on. He just tested positive for COVID. Now it's coming into U.S. They froze the GoFundMe account, which raised over $10 million and nearly 130,000, 140,000 people that donated. And now American truckers are kind of getting involved and saying, listen, we're kind of— Facebook kicked them off yesterday. Facebook kicked them off. 137,000 subscribers to that group. They kicked them off. Yeah, you wait till you see your election this year. You're going to see plenty of that. That's for sure. How bad do so. you think the consequences are going to be? Like, you you really think, you know, some people I talk to, some people like who are professionals in my community, are like, what are you talking about, truckers? I haven't seen anything on the news. I'm like, you haven't seen anything. I haven't seen anything on the news. You don't know what's going on with truckers? No, I read Wall Street Journal and New York Times. I know nothing about what's going on in Canadian truckers. So they don't watch obviously Fox, and maybe they don't watch podcasts, right? But isn't Some, that the same thing with the John Hopkins? Yeah, yeah same report? exact thing. Exactly. It's like, but, how did you not? But here's see it? the point. How, how would I? Yeah. So he said, he says, you really think these truckers are going to have any kind of an influence on anything? It's truckers. You think they're going to have any influence? <laughs> the way Truck- he said it, he said <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, truckers. Kind of looking down yeah, yeah, on them because t- they can't express it with intellectual well, the, thought. Versus the leader, like the leader of the Socialist Party in Canada. So hypothetically, on the side of the working class, the the people who are most opposed to the truckers in Canada are the People who vote NDP, the socialists, about 20% of the population stably in Canada. And now and then we have a socialist provincial government. And they've done some good, you know. I don't want to get into that. But like I said, there are people in, on that side of the equation who, for example, were fostered in the labor movement. And they had, they had things to say. The working class needs to have their say. But the vast majority of people who vote NDP in Canada are opposed to the truckers. It's like, I thought you guys were on the side of the working class. It's like, what's happened? Well, not them. It's like, hey, man, welcome to the working class, those truckers. Well, they're all white supremacists and racists. It's like, really, in Canada, are they now? White supremacists, really? Or Nazis in Canada? (laughs) There aren't any of them. There was some dimwit was waving a Confederate flag at the rally. And the truckers, he was masked. The truckers stripped him of his mask and chased him away. But all the mainstream press reported... Confederate flags at the trucker rally. As if that matters. It's like it's not like there are a lot of Canadians, by mm-hmm. the way, flying the Confederate flag. First of all, that's not right. our country. Exactly. And second, most Canadians, I would say, don't really know in any deep sense what the Confederate flag stands <laughs> for. I mean, right. you know, people aren't that informed, and I'm I'm not being condescending. They by have the way, other things is, to concern this themselves is what, about. It's, it's comments like what you just said that validate some people how much of a role people like George Soros plays to get protesters out there that are actors and they're not real and they're trying to instigate to say, you know, this is how people are feeling because you know the biggest mover and shaker emotion is what anger. Mm-hmm. Anger is the way you get people to say, you know what, these guys are white supremacists. These guys are this. And so this validates how some people have that argument. It also validates how Facebook does their algorithms. They want people arguing in the comment section because anger basically begets more comments Monet, and more, yeah. uh, and basically more but, eyeballs and more sponsors. Jordan's and more. saying, like, how many Canadians even know what the hell the Confederate <laughs> flag even means? Right. And there's one. 
like there's 50,000 people who we don't even know how many people are in Ottawa. Yeah. I've seen wildly different numbers. The idea that there was a hundred trucks, that's just completely insane. There's like 10 times that number minimum. And so that's another thing that's so appalling is you can't actually get accurate information. And then, yeah, well, this Trudeau flees issue, that's... I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like that. It's not like I view that with any sense of satisfaction or, or, or delight. Like, I'm not a fan of Trudeau because I don't think he's capable of saying an honest word. And I, I truly mean that. And I've watched his speeches over and over, watching to see what's going on with him. And all I see is acting. And, but I'm, why, despite that, why would I be happy that the leader of my country ran away from a protest citing security concerns, which is a very bad move mm. to begin with. It's like, well, I have to leave because you people are so dangerous. It's you like, think it shows weakness? Well, no, it's, it's, it's worse than that. It's, it's an instigation. It's an instigation it, because he said that the reason he had to leave was because of security concerns, which means you people are dangerous and not to be trusted. Mm. And I don't think the truckers so far are dangerous and not to be trusted. And I've been watching them handle this. They're, they're playing this. It's been very peaceful for, for the number of people who were involved in the demonstration. And that's despite the potential effect of instigator types. And that's a real threat. So even with that, it's been peaceful. And they're, they've set up food camps to feed the homeless. And they're shoveling the snow in front of the war monument. And now they have a guard around the Terry Fox statue. Terry Fox was a man, one-legged Canadian who ran across the country raising money for cancer, and he's a Canadian hero. And his statue was desecrated in the in the in the language of the mainstream press. They put a fla upside down Canadian flag on it and put some clothing on him, which was desecration. Which, okay, have it your way. In any case, the truckers set up a guard around the statue, so that's not going to happen again. And they seem to be not taking the bait, and so. I hope that that continues and that this proclivity to instigate, which would be extraordinarily convenient for Mr. Trudeau and which is an easy out for him, mm -hmm. I'm praying that that doesn't happen. Is so, there a reason why you wouldn't show up to something like this, like to support the truckers or at least lend your voice? No. The reason I'm not there is because I have other commitments, right? I'm on this tour and, and people have bought tickets and there's thousands mm -hmm. of them and that's what I'm doing. And... You know, I put out videos in support of them, and which I think in some sense is, yeah, well, the video I put out last week, which was a message to the conservative premiers, essentially, and the conservative leader who lost his position last week because there was a revolt at the federal level. And so our main opposition party transformed leadership last week in no small part as a consequence of the trucker convoy, I put out this video calling on these conservative premiers to drop the damn mandates. And so it's, I said, I mentioned earlier, it's got about a million and a half views. It's called Seize the Day. And that's as, if, that's as effective or more effective than me being there. So as far as I can tell, and besides, it's the best I can do under the current circumstances, given everything. Yeah. So, um, you know, you know, it's crazy while this is happening. Uh, <clears throat> I was listening to Charlemagne God. You know, Charlemagne God, I don't know if you know who he is. He Breakfast Club. Uh, he's he's big time radio got a hip hop guy. Big mm -hmm. yeah, in the hip hop mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. Very, very well known. You're he's, a fan at this point. I, I, you know, I think he's necessary. It's not about a fan. I think he's necessary. Anybody that's pushing the envelope and you're fair mm -hmm. and you push your own side, salute. Hats off to you. Live respect that guy. 
He said something the other day on a podcast which pissed a lot of people off. He says, you know what, at this point, I miss Trump. He said, let's get that, you know, back here, because at least you knew he would say some shit and he meant it. And you're like, you could say, I disagree with this guy. He's crazy. And he's not a fan of Trump. No, he's now he, zero he fan of Trump. He recently interviewed yeah. Kamala Harris. He's a supporter of Kamala. He's a supporter of Kamala Harris. Biden, yeah. yeah. And, and is not a fan of, he asked the question, said, who's run this country? Is the president uh, Joe Manchin or is the president Joe Biden? Who is really the president? But anyway, he said, yeah, to Kamala. He said, then, you know, Kamala acted like she got pissed off. But so Trump, hey, maybe we need this guy back, right? Maybe we need somebody like that to come. And you saw Shaq the other day. Can you pull up Shaq, what he said? I don't know if I want to play the video, to be honest with you. If you can find what he says, and maybe do this. Maybe do this. Uh, uh, press unmute on the video. You see that button on the audio. Bring it all the way down. But they're going to pick up the algorithm. So go and say Shaq vaccine force. Just Google Shaq vaccine force. I don't know if you saw this or not, Jordan. Did you see this? This was just yesterday. Did you see this or no, Adam? Did you read the... I have not. Okay. No, I know he did say something about so, it. So watch this. Go uh, Shaq rips COVID vaccine mandates. You shouldn't be forced to make something. You don't take something. Take something, don't. yeah. Now, go all the way down because I want to read to exactly how he said it. Because if they have the whole back and forth, go a little lower, go a little lower, go a little lower. I wish I could show it to you. So, so the lady's like, well, no, they're not really forcing us to take anything. He says, no, no, they are. No, they're not. No one's forced me. He says, what are you talking about? If you don't take it, do you have a job? She says, no, you don't have a job, but they're not forcing me to take it. So that's forcing you. That's forcing you. So what is starting to happen is some people, Charlemagne, is like, listen, maybe this guy that we hated on as much as we hated on, maybe he took positions. Maybe he came out there and talked to us. Maybe at least we had, you know, uh, 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 something to say, took a position on what we had to do rather than, hey, uh, what are we doing today? Hey, you know, how do we handle the situation here? Do you think there are certain people right now, because uh, we're in Florida, so in Florida it's DeSantis and Trump, and it's a very competitive. There's a lot of people that want DeSantis, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of people that don't want DeSantis to run for office because they like him as a governor. They're mm-hmm. worried who would replace him, mm-hmm. but they're still, you know, let's go Brandon flags outside of, a, you know, all these boats that you see. Everyone's got some kind of a let's go Brandon flag, which I'd like to get your uh, feedback on how you feel about Brandon, if you like this Brandon guy or not. But uh, Trump, your thoughts. Next election coming in U.S. with everything that's going well, on. You when think I, there's when a I watched what happened yeah. in the United States with Trump and Clinton, I thought people liked they liked the unscripted, impulsive lies of Trump better than the scripted, instrumental lies of Clinton. What do you so, mean by that? Well, <laughs> Trump... Trump gave a different speech generally when he went from audience to audience. He kind of shoots from the hip, kind of, (laughs) a lot. And it isn't obvious to me that shooting from the hip is really the right way to lead a country. But calculating everything beforehand for maximum impact on your political future, that is not also not a way to run a country. And that's how you get pulled into politics by handler, by PR, by by opinion poll by image we have you know you see politicians we have to protect our image it's like really do you you have to protect your image do you what what's your image exactly well it's what we want people to think we are well how about you be that instead of being the image of that and this you see this dialogue taking place people don't even notice it it's like we have to protect our image it's like rogan doesn't protect his image he doesn't have an image he's actually there which is why people are listening to him mm. or, or come up with some other excuse. He's a gateway to the alt-right. It's like, really, this left-leaning person with 
high degree of sympathy for socialist views on the working class site whose uh, psychedelic experimenter, hippie, countercultural person is a gateway to the alt-right. Really. That's Rogan your story. You're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Of all the stupid stories. Right. It's so it's so ridiculous. You the only way you could possibly believe that is if you knew nothing about him. Because that's right. just not who he is at all. It's preposterous. But the only other explanation is that people are listening to him because they trust him, because he's trustworthy. Well, God, could that possibly be? And all the media forces that are arrayed against him aren't trustworthy. It's like, well, a lot of that, as we already talked about, that's a consequence of rapid technological transformation. How much of that is based on the conversations he has regarding the vax? Because prior to COVID or even vaccine mandates, nobody thought that he was center-right. Nobody. Oh yeah, he was yeah. For no, sure. no. He was getting that because he was before he was, COVID. Yeah, yeah. He was hypothetically, you know, a founding father of the intellectual dark web, and that was going back five years ago. And everybody reviewed, you know, viewed everybody who had a mainstream view. Let's say viewed all the people who were in the intellectual dark web, for lack of a better term, as gateway to the alt right. You know, Brett Weinstein and his and his wife, Heather, you know, <laughs> those terrible right-wingers. It's so preposterous. Right. And, 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 and uh, Sam Harris as well, another, you know, hyper-conservative person. So not it's that like, Well, all. it's just not that at all. Not at Are all. Are these people actually tuning in and listening? No, or are they just making never. assumptions? Oh, no, they don't listen. No, people who criticize, well, what happens often, and this is why Rogan keeps growing in popularity, and it happened with me to some degree, is that People come because they're curious, and then they do listen, and then they think, oh, this is nothing like what I've been told. Hmm. It's, in fact, the, and, it, and I think this was particularly true in my case in relationship to accusations of, say, far-right sympathies. It's like, well, what about all the lectures I gave on Nazism for like 30 years right. at two of the biggest educational institutions in the world? What about those? And then what about this? What about the fact that I had, and now have like 300 hours of things I've said online, and you haven't been able to find one phrase, even taken out of context, that was enough to damn me in any serious sense? Not one. So now you can take some of the things I've said, maybe about gender differences in personality, and clip them, and then put them in a, the most like abysmal interpretive context possible mm, yeah. and warp that seriously and kind of make an argument that I'm a misogynist. But even that's incredibly ineffective. First of all, because I'm not. The fact that I think there are differences between men and women and that I actually appreciate the differences makes me the opposite of a misogynist. Because if you're a misogynist and you don't like femininity, then you deny that it exists and it does exist. And so, and all the data support that. Men and women are broadly more similar than they are different in terms of their personality structure. There's no doubt about that. But the differences aren't trivial. They have major influence on occupational choice, for example. And the data on that's absolutely clear from, from, from and it's all being generated by left-leaning psychologists because the entire psychological research community, the academic community in general, is left-leaning. So all this data showing that there are differences between men and women at a personality level has been generated by people who are antithetical to that idea politically. So, yeah, yeah, well. Did you used to get in arguments with your colleagues? Meaning, I think 90 plus percent of professors are left-leaning. Is that the number, Pat, I want to say? 
90, it's 13 to 1, according to Washington Times. Okay, so Times. more than 90%. So meaning if you're in a room and there's 13 professors and you're more to the right conservative and you're, you know, you're in the break room having a coffee, having a, having a cake or whatever, are you arguing with your colleagues? How did that work? I didn't argue with my colleagues much. Now well, and maybe then did they want to argue with you? Okay, faculty oh, meetings. Oh, people were irritated at me from time to time because I worked with the business school and you know how reprehensible they are. And so that was annoying because I, my attitude to that was, you think all the sins on the side of the business school? It's like, what the hell's wrong with you? That's your viewpoint? You think you're sophisticated? And so, but I didn't argue about that because it just was pointless. I didn't, I, I argued very seldomly with my colleagues mm. and- I spent most of my, I had lots of colleagues who were friends of mine, although at the University of Toronto, they tended to be people who eventually went elsewhere. And that was more a matter of happenstance than anything else. Um, but I had colleagues who were close friends of mine at Harvard, and we got along just fine. And they weren't, I wouldn't say they were also that they were particularly left-leaning. But I would also say, I'm not particularly right-leaning. <laughs> you know, the fact that I was branded uh, conservative or right wing for that matter really came as quite a shock to me because temperamentally I'm kind of halfway between a liberal and a conservative because I'm very conscientious but I'm also very high in this trait openness which is a creativity dimension and so the openness tilts me more in a liberal direction and the conscientiousness tilts me more in a conservative direction so I kind of so I suppose in some ways the easiest political slot for me is something like libertarian but insofar as I would put myself in the political slot, but I never thought of myself as a conservative. So apparently, well, I'm a conservative in some ways now, uh, partly from being a social scientist. As I said, I'm a firm believer in the law of unintended consequences. I also believe the conservative dictate that the best level of government is the level most proximal to the problem. And that's a really good principle, even for, for running an organization, right? Is you want to devolve power, distribute it as much as possible, facilitate local autonomy, and you want the decision makers to be as close to the people that the decisions are affecting as possible. And that's actually why I thought Brexit was a good idea. You know, it's like two Tower of Babel, the European Union. It's like, no, the representatives got too far away from the people. Very, very dangerous. And so I think the UK made a good choice. It's like, no, we're not, especially the UK. It's like center of free speech in the world all things considered, historically considered. You know, Americans and Canadians differ on this to some degree, but in Canada, we kind of view the American Revolution as Englishmen standing up for their rights. As Englishmen standing, standing up, up for, for their yeah, rights? Yeah, well, it, it, the UK had a very well-developed tradition of belief in intrinsic human rights long before the American Revolution. I'm not saying the American Revolution was trivial, because it wasn't trivial, but... It's an extension and elaboration of a set of principles that were there long before the American Revolution occurred. And so... As a Canadian, uh, do you think America is the greatest country in the world? It's, it's probably, yeah, probably. I mean, I was... Every time I go to the UK, I'm, or Europe in general for that matter, I'm stunningly impressed. The UK is an amazing place, and it, its institutions are so remarkable. Oxford and Cambridge, they're so... I mean, I was at Harvard for a long time. The depth of history there, the, the weight of that tradition, the commitment of people to free speech. The UK is an amazing country. The United States has the advantages of the UK, and then it's much bigger. 
You have a huge population. It's incredibly diverse. Your political institutions also allow for a diverse range of experiments at the state level. That really seems to be working out well, much better than in Canada, for example. The United States has this amazing theatricality that's such a potent force. It's so obvious when you come here from Canada because everything in the United States is like a movie set. I was at this uh, uh, gala a week ago. DeSantis spoke at it, a common sense society. Uh, and it was a European organization set up to foster free speech. And uh, they had an ex-military guy, a black guy, sing the national anthem before the formal dinner started. And he just belted it out, you know, with this kind of gospel undertone. And this whole culture, your whole culture is saturated by this unbelievably powerful pop culture that just has its tentacles out everywhere in the world. And so he belted out the national anthem, a cappella, in a way you'd never hear a Canadian belt out O Canada. <laughs> and then they had another guy who was also black, as it turned out, get up and do the prayer before dinner. And he, you could just see him channeling that kind of gospel evangelism that's a big part of the Southern U.S. culture. And so that was amazingly theatrical. And Do you want to attempt to reenact that? No, 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 no I, can't, I couldn't do it justice. And then, they, you know, they showed this video about freedom that was all theatrical. And, and it, the Americans, you Americans, are unbelie- you're unbelievably good at that. It's, it's, it, and it, it shows a culture that has this immense belief in its dream. And that manifests itself in especially in pop culture. It just manifests itself everywhere in pop culture. And, and American pop culture clearly dominates the world. And so, and part of it is that, that dream of a better future that's accessible to all, that, that is given voice through all of that pop culture. I mean, including the automobile, for that matter, because that's an expression of pop culture. And it's certainly not obvious to me at all that it wasn't the automobile that doomed the communists. Because nothing says freedom and individual sovereignty like a 16-year-old with a 400-horsepower Mustang. <laughs> you know, and I know perfectly well if the automobile was invented today that no ordinary person would be able to have one because they'd be too dangerous. You'd have to take a 10-year course and then, you know, get a, <laughs> pay a million dollars a month for insurance and, and be encased in styrofoam. And the car, that's a bloody miracle. It's like, well, why don't we let people go wherever they want in these unbelievably dangerous contraptions? What because a there's, point. There's almost nothing more dangerous than driving, right? And you let kids do it. It's like, 16, yeah, you yeah. can drive, why not? It's like, well, because you run people over. But you can't over drink. And, you yeah, can't have a beer. Yeah, yeah. But, you, well, but, but it's so wonderful. And, and you have all this autonomy in yeah. a vehicle. It, it just yells out yeah. individual liberty. So then you export those to communist countries. It's like you think you're exporting cars. It's, you don't think there's a political message embedded in the existence of an automobile. Wow. So you haven't thought about it. Yeah, it's crazy you're saying that because yesterday we had a guest here, Mike, who said he asked about a car that I own. He says, hey, you right. know, is it true about this car? And I said, if you want to go drive it. And allegedly yesterday he drove it. Allegedly, keyboards. Right. If cops are listening to this, allegedly he went 170 yesterday. What's okay, the car? On the freeway. It's an SF90. It's the fastest street car Ferrari. It's uh, got a thousand horsepower. He was shocked when you're like, "Yeah, here you go. Here's the keys." He's like, "What? Yeah. <laughs> I could go." Have yeah, you yeah. matched it against a Tesla? Well, zero to sixty, Tesla would destroy. Yeah. But to like 210 miles an hour, you're just it's just gonna destroy. Dude, Ferrari's gonna. Jordan, mm, would you like to drive the car yeah. after the show? No, I mean, by the way, you know, for one first time you came to Dallas, I think I took you. You did. I drove you to your hotel and you to meet your wife, right? Because you guys would always travel together. Very good conversation. What with did the you other have? Driver. What car was that? That was a. What did I? I drove you in a Bentley. Oh, that was a blue Rolls Royce convertible. Oh, it was, we a Rolls. Yeah. it was a Rolls. It was. We're at a red light. Mm-hmm. 
guy into the car next to us is like, it's Jordan Peterson! <laughs> <laughs> he went crazy. Driver. What kind of car do you drive right now? I have right a Mercedes now? SL 550. Yeah, you you can nice have any car. car you want. Why do you pick that one? That's a pretty legit car, by the way. Uh, no it's, yeah, it's a nice car. Yeah. Well, I bought it five years ago. Um, I, my brother-in-law had one, which I used to drive in California. I really liked it. I really liked the way it felt. It's got great acceleration. It's cool, too. And so I, I, I bought one, a second-hand one. It's like eight years old, this thing, or nine years old. But uh, it's in great shape, and, and uh, I like it. It's two-seater. I zoom around with my wife in it, and it has a really good sound system. And so we put in the, whatever we're listening to. Yeah, Sometimes what are you bumping rock. when you're driving? What's your music of choice? I can see him as a... Um, I like classic rock. Uh, okay. Um, I have a, about an eight-hour playlist of old jazz and blues standards, uh, crooners. Uh, that's more for the on the romance side of things. I have a really good playlist of old country and blues music that's about seven hours long, which I really love. Our wife, my wife and I listen to that a lot that's in cool. the car, cranked right up. Do you have no, particular Carter family? I really like. I think. Okay, I was going to ask you: is, is there particular names that you listen to more than anyone? Neil well, Young. Does Neil Young come I to like mind? I like Neil Young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but and so he's in my classic rock collection, or he was because it's on Spotify. So you know, <laughs> he was. I don't know if he's going to be there much longer. I don't oh, know. like what John Stewart said. My, my son did a, a real good cover of Harvest Moon that's on Spotify, and so you know we were Neil Young fans. I liked his music, and I still like his music. And and, and artists, if they had any sense, would stay out of that political debate because mm -hmm. they're artists and that's way better. Creative. Barbara so, Streisand came out and said that yesterday that she's going off of a Spotify. Well, but John Stewart said it best. John Stewart's like, first of all, we need to keep Rogan on there. And I think John was on Rogan about a year ago, year and a half ago uh, when he was on. But he said, here was the biggest surprise. When I heard, look, I listened to Neil Young. I think his music's great. I've listened to my entire life. But when, I didn't think Spotify was going to lose $4 billion because of Neil Young. <laughs> he was kind of shocked by it. But let, let me ask a couple stories. One, do you follow anything with China? Are you somebody that's... Okay, so so Soros, which we know the name Soros. Here's what Soros said recently, and I'm curious to get your take on uh, this. Soros is a guy that's worth, I don't know, $20 billion guy. He's a guy that is hated by the right, and a lot of people on the right think he is manipulative, deceptive, and he wants to inject his philosophies politically to this country. But here's what he said. He says that this is a Bloomberg article. Soros says China's real estate crisis, Omicron, threatened Xi rule. Billionaire philanthropist George Soros and China's Xi Jinping may fail to extend his rule of the country later this year. In contrast to what most observers expect, Soros cited Xi enemies within the party, real estate crisis, ineffective vaccines, and a failing birth rate as factors working against him. Internal divisions in China are so sharp that it has found expression in various party publications, Soros said, Xi is under attack from those who are inspired by Deng Xiaoping's ideas and want to see a greater role for private enterprise. Mm -hmm. What do you think is going to happen with Xi and China? Well, my sense of it, and I'm definitely no expert, is that it's not easy for the Chinese to maintain internal unity. And so they tend to focus on that, and perhaps that's partly why China hasn't been as expansionist a power as it might have been. Maybe that's changed to some degree in recent years. But it's, it's a very large country. It has an incredibly diverse population. And so they have their own problems, their own internal problems, which are significant and, and preoccupying. And so I hope that they stay focused on their internal problems and that they stay focused on solving them. I mean, China has been forward-looking enough, thank God, to allow the free market enterprise to flourish 
despite the proclivity for implementing top-down radical left state solutions. And the consequence of that is being, first of all, now China's a player in the international scene, for better or worse, I think mostly for better. I know that a lot of that was accomplished on the backs of the American working class, and that's catastrophic in many ways. But the fact that there aren't tens of millions of Chinese people starving, that's a really good thing for international security and stability, and that's of no trivial benefit to the American working class as well. And the fact is that China makes a lot of cheap stuff that works, mostly, and that people who are more stressed economically have also benefited to that to a tremendous degree. So it seems that all of that has been good. The twist towards a more totalitarian mode of governance in the last 10 years, that's obviously extremely worrisome. The fact that China is a totalitarian state has had a very negative consequence on us in the West, especially in the immediate, uh, what would you call it, in the immediate emergence of the, of the pandemic, because what we did was we rushed to imitate a totalitarian state. We thought, Chinese lockdown, we better do it. It's like, really? Really? We better do what the CCP did. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what we did. And we'll see. We don't know what the consequence of that is yet. We'll see. Not good. Not good, in my estimation. And certainly the Johns Hopkins studies study seems to... It's only a partial study, in some sense. They've done the cost-benefit analysis. Costs so far. We have no idea what the costs are of having kids in masks for two years. We have no idea what the consequences are. What that's done, especially to introverted kids who are high in negative emotion, because they're going to be looking for a reason to hide anyways, and who knows what that's done to their psychological development, both as children and as adolescents. We'll find out over time, but we haven't paid the price for the pandemic lockdowns even a little bit yet. Did we destroy our economy? Like, these things take a long time. You know, they say if you're piling an oil tanker and you detect an iceberg in your path, you can see it, you've already hit it. Because it takes so long for you to turn that it's too late. Well, in some sense, these huge systems that we're a part of are like that, is that you can't tell when they're broken because they take a long time to fall over. And I don't know if our system is broken, but we're going to find out. And I don't know if the pandemic lockdowns broke it. And maybe they didn't. And hopefully they didn't. I mean, I was in New York City, in Manhattan, a month ago. And it was the first time I'd really gone out anywhere other than Toronto. I'd been to New York a few years before, and it's a bouncing place, Manhattan. I love New York. It's such an amazing city. You know, the fact that Manhattan can even exist is just an ongoing absolute miracle. Seven million people compressed onto that island, and it's it's pretty damn clean, and it's pretty safe, and it's really cool, and there's something to do all the time, and you can walk around free, and like, that bloody place is a miracle, that's for sure. And it looked pretty good. I thought, isn't this something? These people have been locked down for like 18 months, and this place isn't on fire. It actually is pretty clean, and most of the businesses are still open, and isn't that a bloody miracle? And Which it most definitely is. And so, Let's pray and not be too resentful about all the foolishness. Let's pray that we 
wake up and we treat the pandemic like the flu and we get back to something resembling the normality of Florida and we put this behind us and we don't get too upset about January 6th and we don't get too vengeful about the Democrats and the radical left and we elect someone half sensible to run the Republicans and we carefully weave our way through to a peaceful future. We, let's pray for that because the alternative is pretty damn dismal. And I don't think we have to have the alternative. You know, one of the, we talked about Trump earlier. Here's my dilemma with Trump, one of many. Um, he's beating the election was stolen drum pretty damn hard. And I look at that as an outsider again, because I'm Canadian, and I think, well, you Americans, you've been split 50-50 for like five decades, like right down the middle. Eh? And there's always election trouble. Because no system is 100% perfect. Maybe there's like a 1%, 2% margin of crookedness, something like that. And you're probably really not going to get rid of that. Maybe you can maneuver carefully to keep it so that it's never any more than 1% or 2%. But to get rid of that last bit of malfeasance and deception and corruption would take such a heavy hand that that would become worse than the problem. And... That's a real problem when you're split 50-50 because small election irregularities can throw the whole election. Okay, so it isn't obvious precisely what can be done about that. But the election was stolen narrative, I think it's weak for a variety of reasons. The first is, it's pretty whiny. Like, why didn't you win with 5% margin then? So, how do you know this isn't your fault? And you think the Republicans aren't gerrymandering congressional districts? Because they are. And so it's not obvious that even if it is the case that there is substantive election fraud, that it's all from one side. And so there's that. And then, you're sure that's the message you want to be sending people? That they shouldn't have faith in their most fundamental institution? You might be right, but... But it's in your interest for that to be true... And so that's a moral hazard. And then, well, what happens when you retake the House? Because that's what's going to happen. I think the Democrats are going to get stomped in the, in the upcoming election. Are those elections somehow valid, but yours wasn't? And so why magically, when the Republicans get elected, that's honest. But when they don't, it's not. And so doesn't that take the wind out of your story? It's like, well, it was stolen. Well, you have the House and the Senate. How do you account for that? So that, to me, that, that's going to weaken that narrative. Trump is capitalizing on anger. He's using the election issue as a means to an end. And he may believe it, but it doesn't matter because it's a weak story, especially when the Democrats lose the House. It's a weak story. So it's not going to, it doesn't have any momentum. But then it, it's worse than that because I also think, and I've talked to lots of Republicans about this, is that the best story you've got? You got tradition on your side. You got the truth as an adventure on your side. You got belief in truth on your side. That's been abandoned by the radical left. You've got belief in science on your side. You've got responsibility on your side. You've got the fundamental purpose of higher education on your side. You can't conjure up a better story for Americans than the election was stolen when, with all that on your side. That's just not very impressive. And I have sympathy for politicians in general 
in the United States. Congress people have very hard jobs. It's not a job I would like. I don't think it's a pleasant job. They spend a lot of their time fundraising, 25 hours a week, on the phone, out of their congressional offices, because otherwise they're not supported by their party leadership. 40% of them sleep in their offices when they go to Washington. They don't even have apartments. Those that do usually have little bitty apartments. Their families aren't there because it's hard to get families to move to Washington now with dual career families. They don't have much of a social group. They have to run for their job every two years. This is not a... Plus, they're under attack all the time and they're micromanaged and micro-scheduled. So... But I'm curious, what point are you trying to make? Are you trying to make a point with Trump saying the fact that you know, election was stolen, because that's exactly what Hillary Clinton's position was for four years, that elections yeah, were well, stolen no, from no, her, no right? Better, no better when she does it. Oh, no, I'm not even, what I'm trying to say is I looked at it as a weak position. That, it is hey, a weak position. It is a weak position she was taking. I think, okay. but That's the worst of it. It's but, like, really? Where are you going with this? Are you going with the tell fact that- Tell a better story. Tell a better story if you want yeah. to get reelected? Is that no, 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 no. The way to re-election is through a better story, but that's not the reason to tell it. The reason to tell it is because you believe it. And the, for the first time in my life, really, I believe this to be the case, conservatives really have something to sell to young people. And they, have the, they can sell the meaning of responsibility because young people are bereft of meaning. And most people find meaning in responsibility. And, and when the right talks about responsibility, they kind of do it in that finger-wagging way that makes conservatives unpopular among young people. You should be responsible. It's like, yeah, you should. Why? Well, because your life is chaotic and meaningless and you're stuck in this juvenile surreality and it's really painful for you and you're anxious and aimless and goalless. And then you look at people who have a life because maybe you could have a life and you think, well, what does that life consist of? It's like, well, you have a committed, intimate relationship. There's one. You have friends that you're honest with and, and playful with. Mm -hmm. So you have a group of friends. You have a job or a career. You, know, you, you, you learn how to use your life, your time outside of work in a productive, engaging way. You regulate your susceptibility to the multitude of hedonistic temptations that are in front of you. Um, you pay some attention to your mental and physical health. You make a goal, some goals for the future that are concrete. Well, there's seven things you can do. They're all responsible things. Why? Because then your life will have some meaning. Now, you might say, well, what's the ultimate meaning? It's like, get those things straight first. They're not nothing. And maybe you won't be so damn miserable and bitter and resentful and angry and aimless and anxious and frustrated and disappointed and ashamed if you had five of those seven things going well. And the conservatives can make that case. No bloody left isn't making that case. It's like for them, responsibility is pretty much equivalent to totalitarian patriarchal oppression. The conservatives could just take that and say, no, no, our institutions, they're pretty solid. Maybe if you don't like what's happening on the political front, you join a, a group, a church, uh, the Elks, the Rotary, some civic organization. Get in there and do your part. Why? Not because you should, even though you should, but because... Well, why not meet some people who are like-minded and have a social group? And you, you think Biden can, can have the kind of impact to push people away from the political party to the opposing side, similar to how Goldwater and what they did back in the days on how civil rights was handled when Barry Goldwater did what he did. And next thing you know, African-Americans went from uh, only 60% uh, of them voting 
uh, Democrat to 92% four years later. They went from 60% to 92% four years later in the next election. And Republicans haven't had a chance on the African-American vote since 1964. Do you think the current climate is that big of a climate where the conversion from one side to the other side to say, listen, I don't agree with you guys on censoring. If the guys want to talk, leave them alone. The way you handle COVID by shutting everybody down, I don't agree with that. Constantly printing money, I don't agree with that. Do you think it could be something where it could flip that that big? I don't know because twenty the next presidential election in this climate is a long way away. Because you know who can predict the future even a year out, especially given the rate of technological change that we face now. I mean, you don't even know what's happening today. There's so many technological transformations just today, many of which have world-shaping consequences. God only knows where we're going to be by the time of the next presidential election, but. It certainly does seem to me the case that the Democrats are going to lose big in the fall. And so, you know, that's, that's what we'll focus on for the time being. We'll see what happened there. We'll see what happened. A couple other topics before we wrap up here. So remote work. It's a conversation everybody's having. I'm going to read the Vox story uh, uh, on remote work, and then we'll talk uh, a couple other stories here, and we'll wrap up. So Vox comes out with this article. Remote work isn't the problem. Work is. Okay. Executives are nearly three times more likely than non-executives to say they want to return to office full-time, according to Slack survey. The report found that while nearly 80% of knowledge workers want flexibility in where they work, their employer thinks that the arrangement will lead to a variety of ills, diminishing the company's collaboration, creativity, and culture. As people have quit their jobs or stepped out of workforce, in what's called the great resignation, you've heard that before, or the great reshuffling, those left behind have had to pick up the slack. Two-thirds of workers said their workloads has increased significantly since they started working remotely. As if increased work-related work weren't enough, pandemic-related obstructions, the lack of childcare, smaller social support system has caused many people to have work outside of paid work. So this whole concept of the great resignation and what's happening? You know, some people are sinners. Listen, you guys got to come back to work. I'm in the financial industry. I can't tell you how many people are having a hard time getting their people back. Like the biggest thing CEOs will tell me is, Pat, we, we screwed up. We screwed up taking a position of it's okay. You can work from home because now they are only looking for jobs that allow them to work from home and other companies are willing to take that position even though it doesn't work. So we're in a we're cornered right now, and we don't think long term this is an effective way of running a company. What are your thoughts with the great resignation? Well, one of the things I learned when I was in Washington, we we were trying to understand. I went there with a in collaboration with a group that runs the Amer the presidential prayer breakfast, and so they're Christians. Um, self-admittedly, let's say, who have been operating in Washington since the Eisenhower administration. And most of what they do is bring people together, congressmen and senators, within parties to have some social time, a meal, uh, some chance to talk, or across party lines. And they're trying to provide the kind of hospitality that produces social relationship. And we talked a lot about this because one of the things that's happening in Washington that is fostering polarization is the breakdown of the social community. 
So it's hard to get people to move to Washington, often because their spouses have jobs, and so they're localized in their community. Uh, hard to move the kids. And so, as I said, 40% of congressmen, I believe it is, sleep in their offices. And uh, then you can do a lot of remote meetings, and, and then you can fly in and fly out. And you think, so what? Oh, and then there's cameras recording your speeches in the House. So that means you're always acting instead of saying what you think. Mm. And so there's this con confluence of technological transformation that's devastating the underculture of Washington. Because what used to happen more was that, well, people would go to each other's soccer games with their kids. You know, their kids' soccer games or baseball games, and they'd get to know each other a bit. And if I disagree with you, then it's easy for me to think you're bad because I think that what I think is right because I wouldn't think it if I didn't think it was right, mm -hmm. if I'm a good faith player. Mm -hmm. And you might not be bad, you might just be different. But I need to get to know you. Well, what does that mean? It means that I need to step out with you in the actual world and do something in the actual world that shows how much we actually have in common. And a lot of that's social. Like I, I had a lunch I set up five years ago, four years ago. We invited, I think, eight Republican congressmen and eight Democrats, and they were all juniors, and they didn't know most of the people within their own party organization, much less people across the aisle, and they're not exactly rewarded for talking across the aisle either, especially when the leadership has a top-down vision of what constitutes leadership. And so instead of having them talk about anything political, we just had them talk about, why are you in Washington? You know, most of these people these snake pit dwellers, you know, in, in the cynical parlance, they had perfectly functional lives before they went into Congress. They gave up a lot to seek political office. You think, well, they're power hungry. It's like they were doing all right. So it isn't obvious that this was a step up for them. And so all of them, I said, take three minutes and just say why you were here. And it was, it was the same speech. Every single one of them gave the same speech. And it wasn't nonsense. It, and it was deeply cinematic in that American sense. You know, they talked about their love for their country and their patriotism and the fact that they felt that they had to give back. And every single person, no, they, they personalized that. They talked a little bit about their own story and how they came to that realization. But there's no way you could tell the Democrats from the Republicans, not on the basis of that. And I tell you, if you were there, you would have walked out thinking, that's a pretty decent group of people and they're really trying hard. That, that I swear that's certainly, I was there with people, one person in particular, who's much more tilted to the Democrat side, and that was his take on the whole room, and so... How old were these people? Oh, anywhere from junior. 35 to 45, basically. And, gotcha. and so my point is, the problem with the, with the distance work is that it's predicated on the idea that everything we do that's important is done in the abstract, right, in the domain of information exchange, explicit information exchange, and that's just not true. So that's a danger because we don't know what that will do to cooperative organizations. Now, it might be a good thing. It might be a bad thing. I often meet with my son on Zoom when we're doing business-related, when we have a business-related matter because it's actually easier to share our computer screens and do what we're doing than it is to meet in person. But that doesn't mean I don't want to meet him in person. I want to meet him in person for sure. So there's that. Then that's a... 
beware of what your technology is doing because it's doing all sorts of things that you do not understand at all. Like it could be that the decimation of the underlying social community in Washington is enough to drive polarization to the point where the whole system will rock and crumble. We, we have no idea because we don't know why it worked. It, it worked. You know, I've, I've been thinking about online universities. Well, that's easy. Lectures and tests. That's what universities do. It's like, no, that might be, maybe that's 5% of what universities do. 5%. Yeah, I would say so. Here, that I can low. Get, well, here's a bunch of things universities yeah. do. They confer an identity upon you. Who are you? I'm a student. Okay. Respectable. So for $120,000, let's say it's more than that sometimes and less than that, you now have an identity for four years that your culture respects. Okay. And that means you have a container within which you can have intellectual freedom while you're deciding what you want to do with the rest of sure. your life. Instead of torturing yourself about how useless you are because you don't have a productive job yet. So that's a big deal. God only knows what that's worth, but not nothing. Mm -hmm. Well, how about finding a mate? So there's evidence now coming out. I don't know how reliable it is. You know that it's about two women for every man in many academic institutions now. And that proclivity towards female dominance seems to be increasing. However, it appears that once the men drop to one-third of the population, the women stop going. Well, you think, why is that? Well, why the hell do you think it is? You go out of your little town, you know, you want to find a new peer group, and you're young. It's one of the things you want to do is find a mate. So part of the reason you go to a good university is because the sorting has already taken place. It's like, well, you know, this person's got a high school diploma, mm -hmm. and they're, they're clued in enough to yep. pursue college education. Filtering system. Yeah, so that's a huge deal. And then universities also act as a filtering system for businesses because they use the SAT as an entrance requirement. So if you hire someone as a graduate from a high-end university, you knew that they had a high IQ because the SAT is an IQ test. And God only knows what that's worth. And then you shed your peer group, your old peer group, and you establish a new one, maybe when you're a bit wiser. And that's a, I mean, one of the major elements of my college education was the transformation of my peer group. That was huge. And then there's personal relationships between you and the professors. If you're lucky enough to establish them, that's a big deal because then you get to interact with someone who's an embodiment of the academic tradition and see how they act. That's different than listening to what they say in a lecture. And then there's the social surround, the joint meals. This is, they make a big deal of this at Cambridge and Oxford because the students eat together mm -hmm. in their colleges. Mm -hmm. And God only knows how important that is. And then there's the part of being an embodied actor in that academic tradition and learning to speak and write. And so that's just a handful of things universities do. And that's not lectures and tests online. And to reduce it to that might destroy it completely, could easily be. And it's the same with our political institutions. They depend on these real-world substructures that, like, like engagement in civic society, we have no idea how important that is. And the fact that that's starting to deteriorate in Washington could be fatal. You know, you know what I would be curious about? You know how in America, the, the one school university that was popping 20 years ago and Everybody said, oh, I can get my MBA on, on, online. It was, uh, what, Phoenix, Phoenix University? University. Phoenix mm -hmm. University, right? 
And I recruited a few of their sales guys, uh, and they're legit sales guys because they, they're selling is what they're selling. Um, I saw their sales training was great. But one of the things I'd be curious about is how much do they get from boosters? Like kids graduate from Phoenix University <laughs> and they got the degree online. Like I wonder, oh, my gosh, I'm so loyal to the school. I got to give these guys 10 grand. You know, I want to contribute because this university changed my life. Did it, though? Like, is there, you know, and so what I'm saying, like, because for You're me, there's no culture. There's I don't no think, games. how do you no... do that? Like, you know, hey, you want me to go to church on Sundays on a Zoom? Yeah, okay, great. Fine. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll listen to a service. I mean, they all, every church does it nowadays. And they'll say, our service today was viewed by 73 countries because YouTube said 73, oh, we 73 countries, right? But am I sold, you know, am I really emotional? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I, I well, wonder, you like, you go also validates your point about the 5% lecture and, you know. Well, you also don't know what people were doing when they went to church. And people were cynical about that. Uh, people who fell out of the church, they say, well, you know, they're one hour a week Christians. It's like, well, better an hour of contemplation of higher order moral virtue than zero so zero's not much. And you think, well, the church didn't do that good a job. It's like, okay, do, do better. See if you can do better. Yeah. And so, but, but then also, well, what are you doing when you go to church? Well, you're singing. That's not nothing. With other people, that's not nothing. You're trying to orient yourself ethically with your community. Mm -hmm. You're sacrificing a part of your weekend to indicate your willingness to do so. Like you're you're in a drama, right? You're acting out something, mm -hmm. and it's not it's not merely fictional. It's like we get up in the morning, and you you saw this in The Simpsons all the time with Marge Simpson trying to get her family to go to church, which they did. It's like get up, put on a suit, dress up, go out there with members of your community, and show your allegiance to something higher. And the atheists are cynical about that sort of thing, you know, because they reduce God to a set of propositions, but they don't have any real appreciation for the embodiment. It's like I was in these beautiful chapels in, in Cambridge and Oxford. My God, they're so beautiful. It's just beyond comprehension. They're so stunningly magnificent. And the boys' choirs were singing, and they have excellent boys' choirs. They're like world-class. Mm -hmm. And then they read these ancient words, and those things ring true. And there was a bunch of ideological nonsense at one of the chapels I went to, and that was off-putting. But you have to be there and doing that for that to work, right? It's, it's not replaceable in any real sense by a virtual experience because it's not just information content or it's not abstract information content. It's the acting out of something. And that's what happens when you join a civic club. You know, it's, it's, a mark of, it's a mark of willingness to participate. It's a mark of faith in the system. And you think, well, I'm cynical about the damn system. It's like, good for you. You're not naive. You know, thumbs up for you. But... Cyn you're going to top out in your wisdom at cynicism? That's pretty dismal, man. You can do better than that. Like cynicism, that's, that's beginner's place. How often do you go to church? That's a good question. Um, I don't attend church. Um, and so you might think that makes me a hypocrite. And possibly it does. Um, I would say I participate avidly in civic enterprises, however. You know, and for me... This, the lectures, that's a church for me. You know, I'm trying to make things better. And I think I'm participating with people, my audience members, my viewers and listeners. They're committed to making things better. And they're committed to, I hope, 
at least in some sense, they're committed to the truth. And so it's always been awkward for me to go to church because for a variety of reasons, and some of that might just be the unwillingness to do it, but I find myself uncomfortable in them often because I always got the impression that the people who were reading the words didn't believe them. The Trudeau factor. Yes. Yeah. And so that's not necessarily any reason to be cynical. But then again, I'm not cynical about religious matters. So quite the contrary. So I had a guy, I had a guy, Marvin Del Valle. You know who Marvin Del Valle is? Of course. Is. So you're his hero, okay? You, you, he brought you up at the event in front of 6,000 people, okay? He says, Patrick, I'm begging you, if you can, ask this question. He's a Catholic. And he's a very, very well-read Catholic, okay? And he, when I, he's from Honduras. He's done well for himself in business. And when I read this question for you, you're going to realize how technical of a question he's asking you, okay? Uh, and, and I'm curious to know what, take, you know, what your take is going to be on this. It has to do with a comment you made about the Catholic Church, right? Let me read this to you, see if I have it. Here we go, okay? It's long-winded, so just uh, mm-hmm. brace for impact. Okay. So okay. in his video, Who Dares to Say He Believes in God, he criticized the Catholic Church very harshly. Is not... Uh, the first that he had done, and he basically compared the Catholic Church to the Protestant approach to salvation, number one. Number two, he then had the opportunity to interview Bishop Barron as part of his podcast name, Christianity and the Modern World, and most of us expect him to ask some really tough questions about the issue. He criticized, but he never never happened. He almost looked overwhelmed by the moment and the conversation. He almost looked like a man that wanted to confess, okay? First question. He's got three of them here for you. Number one, why did he avoid the tough questions? Bishop Barron was the best person, the most qualified person to clear what I believe is a mistaken perspective about the Catholic Church. Number two, he was also just coming back from a difficult health situation he experienced in 2019. Did that influence his approach to the conversation? You called me the day of my birthday, September 20th. I called him, let me know that he was really not doing well. You, when you, you know, you, you, we knew kind of what you were going through. I was very emotional and was praying for him ever since. You have to realize this guy's a true believer yeah, of you. Yeah, Number yeah. three, my final question is about the Catholic Church. To which Catholic Church is he referring to? The Latin American Catholic Church that was heavenly influenced by liberta- liberation theology for the last 60 plus years? By the way, very poor Catholic Church. B, the very wealthy North American Catholic Church. C, the European Catholic Church that almost like ang- uh, ang- Angelican Church feels like a social club. D, the grown missionary African Catholic Church, also very poor and persecuted church. The Russian Catholic Church suffering persecution by the Russian Orthodox Church. The Asian Catholic Church persecuted by the Chinese government. Or the persecuted, almost decimated Catholic Church at the East. His he talking is he talking about the pre-Vatican, the second, or the post-Vatican, the second church? Is he familiar with the current conflict that emerged from the Vatican, the second? He made a blanket uh, statement about the Catholic Church. Which church is he talking about? Does he know the difference between them? Between the missed opportunity with Bishop Barron and not being specific enough about his position with the Catholic Church, he left a lot of unanswered questions. Where do you stand with that? Well, one of the things I learned from reading Carl Jung, I mean, this isn't a statement he made explicitly, but but it's it emerges as a consequence of reviewing a a fair bit of his thought. His proposition, in some sense, was that Catholicism was as sane as human beings could get. 
And it's a very interesting rejoinder to the atheist types because they think we could be rationalist materialists. But I don't think we can be because that isn't what we're like. We're, we're all going to become rational in, in this scientific sense. It, there aren't that many scientists. And even among scientists, there aren't that many scientists. It's actually really hard to be a scientist. You, it takes a lot of training. It's a very specific way of thinking. And it isn't how obvious how broadly accessible that's ever going to be. And I say that as an admirer of the scientific enterprise. Catholicism is a great drama. It's an inclusive, encompassing ritual and drama, as well as a system of beliefs. And, you know, more power to it, as far as I'm concerned, on that regard. I don't remember what my fundamental criticism was, unfortunately. I... There's many podcasts that I've done because I was so ill and sometimes while doing them that I don't, I don't remember them at all. I meet people that I interviewed for two hours and I don't remember meeting them. It's very distressing, but that's life. Um, I would say, and I think the idea that a critique should be differentiated, that's, that's a very good idea and, and fair enough. And I certainly don't feel like engaging in a blanket condemnation of the Catholic Church. I've, I've been grappling and trying to do this with Bishop Barron, too. Part of the reason Barron wanted to talk to me is because the people who are actively engaged in the religious enterprise professionally, and this is Orthodox Jews, Muslims, Orthodox Christians, Roman Catholics, Protestants, Protestants less so, but some, they're, they're interested in the popularity of my lecture series on Genesis because I did that lecture series in 2017 it was really the first public lecture series I gave we rented a theater in Toronto privately and booked it for 15 weeks and I offered these lectures and all the tickets sold out and most of the people who came were young men mm. and that's weird because you imagine going to a bank with this business plan so I'm going to rent a theater. I want you to loan me some money. I'm going to rent a theater. I'm a professor. I'm going to rent a theater. And I'm going to lecture. The first lecture I'm going to give will be two hours on the first sentence of Genesis. And my target market is young men. <laughs> it's like they're not going to lend me any money. That's, that's a no starter. But the, the lectures sold out. And they've been watched, I don't know, 40 million times or something on YouTube. And so the the civil apparatus of many religious organizations are interested in this because I obviously tapped into something that they're not tapping into. And my criticism, if I remember, was a criticism aimed at addressing the fact that that's not being tapped into. One of the things I talked to Bishop Barron about, and I may not be addressing your friend's concern because I don't know what specific criticism he was, he was, uh, he was concerned about, I suggested to Barron that the reason the church, is, the church, the Catholic Church, is not doing as well as it might, there's many reasons, is that they actually, in the attempt to popularize the faith, especially in the 60s, they ended up not asking enough of people. So we, we shouldn't ask so much. Like, no, wrong decision. Meaning you, demand, expect? Mm -hmm, expect. Ah, okay, got it. Make it more accessible. Got it. It's like, got it. Yeah. One thing I learned from reading Kierkegaard, you know, Kierkegaard said at one point in a real comical piece of writing that once everything has become too easy, yeah. that there'll be a massive outcry for voluntary difficulty. 
And I thought, that's smart. Well, he was smart. He was Kierkegaard after all. And the church can offer that. That is what it has to offer. Like, that's the straight and narrow path. This is very, 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 very difficult. But it's the alternative to hell. So there is that. And I think that's, there's true and there's meta-true. And that's meta-true. That's, that's powerful because, you know, uh, churches sit behind closed doors and the board will say, the, whoever the board may be at a non-denominational church, hey, pastor, this last time you talked about, the, you know, pick whatever it is, transgenderism, a little bit too much. We're losing our, you know, attendees. You talked about this. Don't spend too much time talking about gay marriage out of the Bible because we have to be a little bit more diplomatic. You know, don't let's not raise the standard too much where people are doing too many Bible studies or too many, you know, whatever you know, events at the house. You're saying no, double down and raise the standards and keep them high. Expect more from people. That's what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely, and and it isn't, and not in a finger wagging sense. It's more. I've been thinking, I've been talking to a lot of Islamic thinkers, and I have a lot of people who, a lot of Muslim people have watched my biblical lectures, like a lot. And so I have a following, strangely enough, among the Muslim community and among Orthodox Jews and broadly among religious communities. And, you know, the Christians are often on me to come out and just profess my faith in Jesus Christ as our universal Savior. Mm. And, um, whenever I'm let's say, questioned in that manner. It's always a trap. It's like, join my club. It's like, yeah. you just stay in your own club. And I've got lots of people to talk to, you know. But a huge part of, you know, the, the Muslims say, it's pretty funny. Peterson doesn't realize it, but he's actually a Muslim. And, and I had an Orthodox Jewish fellow in New York make a comment about, his friends watching my videos and seeing them in accordance with the deepest elements of their teachings. And it's a lovely thing to see. It's very surprising to me. It's, it's quite staggering. But, you know, what I'm doing is predicated on the idea that there's way more to people than they let out. And a lot of that's to be found in mm-hmm. their darkness. Mm-hmm. And I'm making that case I suppose the people who've been most attracted by that case have been young men, and I think that that's because they're so actively discouraged in the expression of their possibility by our culture. Actively discouraged, because they're regarded as, you know, oppressive patriarchs in training or some bloody thing like that, and so caustic and so horrible. I guess the the question question I was more asking is, you know, the idea is if we lower the standards, attendance will go up. We've been losing attendance because standards have been very high. Let's lower a little bit. Let's be more welcoming. You know, it's, and it's, more political and more yeah, relevant. Yeah, it's like religion isn't politics. It, it, religion is the, is the structure that contains politics. It's far deeper. It's like politics, literature, religion. That's sort of the structure. So, Politics, literature, Yeah, politics religion. is embedded. Well, you Americans, I, I said yeah. you're all theatrical here. Well, it's because your whole polity mm. is, is encapsulated in narrative. Everyone knows that. That's the American dream. It's like, what's the American dream? Well, it's hard to put your finger on it, and you guys are exploring that all the time, not least in your popular culture. Mm-hmm. It's constant exploration of what constitutes the American dream. That's the container for the political structure, and it's the dream that unites you. The political structure does as well, but... It can't unite you if the dream doesn't unite you. And underneath, so the dream is 
That's in the domain of literature, essentially, and storytelling and dream. And underneath that, the deepest strata of the literary endeavor is the religious endeavor. The Bible is a story. Is it true? Well, depends what you mean by true. <laughs> and people say, well, that's Weasley. It's like, no, it's not. If you ask a profound question like that, is the Bible true? You can't assume true and then cram the Bible into that. You have to make both sides of the equation open to question. What do you mean by true? Well, you're not answering the question. No, I'm just not answering it the way you want yeah. me to. I'm not. This is why people like Richard Dawkins always kick the hell out of religious people when they're debating them. It's because Dawkins comes armed with a conception of the truth, and it's not trivial. It's like the scientific conception of the truth. This is a big club. And before he even begins, this, the whole structure of the debate is predicated on the fundamental acceptance that that definition of true is valid and complete. And so the religious people just lose because they're up against the might of science. Mm. It's like, how are they not going to lose mm. that? Mm. So what do you mean by God true? God is not great? Is that, is mm. that mm. Yeah, mm. I've read it. And by the way, mm. he, he, he is uh, very, very influential on in how he influenced the world. By the way, I want to yeah. keep you on time with what very, you got very going smart. on as well. Yeah, very. Uh, I had a conversation with him at Oxford. We're going to release that in a couple of weeks. How long ago was that? month ago. Oh, it's very cool. Yeah, That's only audio. But yeah, I would have liked to have talked to him for like 35 hours. I bet. I can only imagine that, yeah. especially. So How much more time do we now, have? I got to wrap up because it's... Uh, anyways, let me show you this. A neighbor of mine asked me this question. He's Canadian. He says, can you ask Jordan Peterson this? Go to the picture with uh, 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 Trudeau. What, what can you say about this? This is your world. I don't know if this... Is this even talked about over there with the whole story of Justin Trudeau's you know, related to Castro because years ago, like, is this, is this a, show the other picture where this other guy posted it. So apparently this is, uh, uh, go to the picture of uh, a Fidel, the wife and the father. So this is a picture of them three. That's his mother. That's him. That's the father. But then you put Justin right next to Castro. Can you go back to the other picture on Twitter? Yeah. That one right there. It, it looks eerily it, similar. Yeah. Is there any, is this even a conversation in Canada? Has anybody been telling? Because this is written about many, many different places to the point where they tweeted about it and said, no, Castro is not Justin Trudeau's no, father. No, it's a, it's a nasty, it's a nasty bit of innuendo. And uh, I think it's, 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 it's resentment fueled fundamentally. Like in some sense, it's a satirical joke, you know, and mm -hmm. fair enough, but it's, it's not helpful. Look, one of the things that happens if you're a political leader is you're, you're exposed to criticism of all sorts. And, and part of that's to stop your power from degenerating to something approximating mm -hmm. a tyranny. So you, you kind of have to put up with it. This, I would say, is... I, w I wouldn't propagate the idea. Okay. Okay. Um, First of all, just it's speculation, clearly. It's mean-spirited speculation uh, on the part in relationship to the behavior of Trudeau's mother. Even if it was true, then, well, what's your point? He's born a communist? That's your point? That's a stupid point. You know, or what he knows that Castro is his father, and so now he's tilting hard towards the left to please him? Well, that's... That's not helpful and clueless. Now, the Trudeaus in some sense set themselves up for something like this because 
Trudeau played the senior, played footsie with Castro in a way that was rather unique in the Western world, and I think that was ill. That was not a good decision. He was less stringent in drawing a line between the left and the radical communist left that he might have been. And so those chickens have come home to roost, in some sense, in terms of this assault on his son. And Justin himself doesn't do a very good job of drawing a distinction between his views and the views of the radical left. And so all of that's mangled around in this satirical attack. But I don't think it's the most effective. Mm -hmm. it's, it's got an element of real gossipy innuendo and mean-spiritedness about it that I think overwhelms whatever humorous satire it might also contain. So, I mean, they did this with Obama's, uh, you know, when Trump came out and said, $5 million, prove to me your birth certificate, you're born mm -hmm. here. These types of stories yeah. tend to do well and they tend to go viral. But, you know, th this is just, when you look at this, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it looks a little too, uh, too real to, you know, that's why people are giving the credibility. Anyways, we are at the end of the podcast. Jordan, I appreciate you coming out. A couple things. Gang, if you are in Florida, he's performing, he's speaking tonight. If you can't even get the tickets at Miami, Florida, Fillmore. Today the third. No, it was yesterday. I'm sorry. Seven. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Seventh. You're going to be yeah. in Houston. Yeah. It's where you'll be at the uh, Bayou Music Center. Eighth. You'll be in Midland, Texas. Ninth. You're in Irving. Tenth in San Antonio. Fifteenth in New York. Sixteenth in New York. Seventeenth in Providence. Twenty-first in Nor Norfolk, Virginia. Then DC on the twenty-second. Philadelphia twenty-third. Boston twenty-fourth. We're going to put the link below. Mm -hmm. If you haven't had a chance to go spend some time with this man, I highly recommend you take your family, wife, kids. Uh, and have them hear from him because he's going to get everybody thinking and at least a great conversation. And uh, I have a feeling this will not be the last time we'll have you on again. Jordan, thank you so hey, much for coming out. Hey, good to see you guys again. Yes, and yep. what we're doing is every time we get a guest, somebody signs one of these lockboxes. You pick one, sign it up there so we know Jordan Peterson was in the house. Folks, uh, this has been a week of us doing podcasts four times. I think we got some lineup next week's only going to need one time because I'm all over the country. But it's been great to... Uh, having Jordan on today. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Give it a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Tyler, you look like you're, Taylor, you look like you want to say something? I was say we got Rolo Tommaso, uh, Tomasi Tuesday yeah. and uh, maybe a few other things in the work. But we do have Rolo. a lot of surprises coming yeah. up. We just can't reveal it right now. But uh, anyways, take care, everybody. Bye-bye, bye-bye, bye-bye.